welcome to the Strength Culture Podcast. All right, guys. Happy New Year. This is the first podcast of the new year. So even though we're almost uh, through the month, I'll just go ahead and say Happy New Year to everyone who's listening. Um, I'm really excited, like, like most podcasts, to speak to my guest today. His name is Nicholas Simpson from Calgary, Canada, and he is a strength and conditioning coach uh, from Vital Strength in Physiology. And if you guys haven't had a chance to check him out on Instagram yet, I did share some of his stuff today. Um, after the conversation, I'm sure people will be very interested um, to go check you out on Instagram. And you're just at Nicholas Simpson. All right, guys. So Nicholas, thanks so much for uh, for joining me today. I appreciate you cutting out some time and uh, sitting down and talking with me. Yeah, my pleasure. And thanks for having me on. Um, and just quick correction on the uh, Instagram handle that's at Nicholas Simpson underscore. Nicholas Simpson underscore. Yes, that's right. Good. So should be easy to find. Um, yeah. So I just want to kind of go ahead. I've, I've been talking to Nicholas, I guess it's probably been a few weeks now. Um, yeah. I th I've been following some of your stuff. I didn't realize for quite a bit of time. Um, I think just naturally through kind of some of the other guys I've been following, obviously with the Gota and the WEC stuff. Um, and I think this is going to be a really good conversation for a lot of listeners coming off the, the podcast with Ricky um, and kind of still touching on a lot of those concepts. And I think you're going to bring not only a lot of your own perspective and experience with the concepts that were lightly discussed, but then kind of your own take um, on them as well. And so, Nicholas, if you would, um, I would like you just to kind of start, give us a brief or, you know, as brief as you want, kind of go back as far as you want in terms of um, your background. You know, you can go into athletic history um, and, 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 you know, kind of from a kid and then, you know, bring us to where we are now, I think would be a great place to start. Yeah, absolutely. So, like, I had a bit of a multi-sport background going up. Uh, did soccer, hockey, baseball, but I never really carried uh, any of those through to a high level. So once I got into high school, I was a little bit more interested into putting on size. And I was a skinny kid back then. Um, a little bit of running, and uh, I think I overdid that. I tend to overdo a lot of things. That's been a, a learning process for me, but I got some pretty bad stress fractures in both shins. And then that's what pushed me more towards strength training in general. And at some point, I wasn't really interested in becoming a bodybuilder. And I just, I liked being strong in general. So I got a little bit more into the powerlifting side. Then I liked the athleticism, athleticism that I saw in weightlifting. And so I, I found a local club uh, and we had a, cool coach there who is from Armenia and so had taken athletes to the Olympics in the Soviet Union and competed in that for about four or five years and racked up some injuries along the way. Uh, there wasn't a lot of time to do that as a starting work. And so that pushed me more to powerlifting as a bit of a hobby, but continued to not do great things to my body with that. Um, back and hips and, and everything else. And it was just getting beat up. But uh, so that's 
more the like uh, the athletic things leading into it. And then work-wise, I'd done my bachelor's of science in kinesiology, like you said, in that last year uh, of university, did a work term with the Canadian Sport Institute here. And so they're um, attached to the university and we have the Olympic Oval in Calgary, which uh, for the time being, is the only sort of long track speed skating oval in Canada. So we have a big speed skating population. And as soon as I graduated, got hired on uh, with the Sport Institute, started picking up sort of odd jobs, worked uh, as an assistant coach with the football team uh, for a year or so. And then not too long after the Vancouver Olympics, the contract for the assistant coach of the speed skaters came up. And so I started to pick that on. And for a while was working with every speed skating team they had at the Oval. So that was, uh, I think, nine teams at one point. So kids would come uh, or move to Calgary when they're 14 or 15 years old started skating. We had multiple development groups on the short and long track side. And then, um, then they would move on to the national development and national teams. And so saw that through to the, um, uh, through the next two Olympics and then did that until, um, just 2019 here. That's where I moved off onto vital strength and physiology. Hey, so like a lot of guys probably listening who either did or didn't play sports growing up, kind of first introduction to the, into the iron game was trying to put on some size. I can totally relate to your whole reason for getting into lifting because I myself was always one of those like skinny kids that never, uh, you know, I could eat anything. It just wouldn't put on weight, um, played baseball. But, you know, very, very, honestly, really very little strength training until, um, until after high school, just because in the baseball culture, like it's, it's changing now, but when I played it, it's, you didn't lift weights. It, it definitely was not part of the, uh, <laughs> part of the training. So, um, so you went, so you got, you went from kind of wanting to, you know, not really bodybuild, I says, but just get bigger, lift, get bigger, get stronger. Um, you mentioned before we started the podcast that, uh, you knew you didn't really want a desk job. So that kind of pushed you into, um, going the route of, you know, kinesiology and, 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 in training in general, um, even though you didn't come from a sport background, um, per se. Um, I think that's a really interesting, you know, cause a lot of guys get into it. And, and what I find is that a lot of guys are kind of like, I don't want to say failed athletes, but they, they didn't really you know, they didn't really take their sport to the next level. So it's like how they try to stay attached to it as much as they can. So generally they go into training, um, with the, with the goal of training athletes, but you got into some weightlifting, um, and powerlifting. And you said, you, you mentioned you have, you had some injuries. Can you just kind of touch briefly over what some of those injuries were that you dealt with while, um, you know, pursuing some weightlifting and, and powerlifting? Yeah. And, um, so when I started weightlifting, uh, I think a disadvantage was that I'd actually gotten quite strong by most standards, uh, you know, not um, considering what's out there, but I'd gotten strong before I ever started weightlifting. And that really, that allowed me to handle 
heavy weights in a snatch in a clean that I really had no business lifting because my technique was not there. Uh, and then I just said, you know, this is my early twenties then, and I had too much of an ego to really, um, take the weights down and work on form. And so, you know, I could practically, was practically reverse curling a hundred kilos, um, for a clean and doing that over time, uh, just really started to wear down my shoulders. So I'd get some like really terrible bicepital tendonitis. Um, eventually, uh, started to, um, or I'd suspected torn labrum. They had some imaging that was like inconclusive. Um, and then, and yeah, I remember with those shoulder injuries, um, after doing a set of cleans, my hands would literally be quivering where I'd have to use both hands to drink from the water bottle. And then, uh, then we'd just go back and, and do another set and not really give myself the rest. And, um, around the same time, like just from with my own training, I was used to maybe squatting once a week, twice a week, week at most. And again, because I was strong, I kind of dro dropped into what should have been a more advanced weightlifting program and went to squatting six days a week. And then my hips and knees, uh, were getting really irritated. Once my hips started to get tight, I think my low back would start rounding more at the bottom of my squats. And then my back started to get irritated. Never got terrible when I was weightlifting, uh, but it was more uh, when I was powerlifting and just the accumulation of things. But I think there was um, some heavy deadlifts where that threw things out and then uh, had some imaging done on that eventually and had four bulging discs and not that the imaging like is the end all be all because you can have um, findings on there that don't necessarily correlate with symptoms. But um, I had like through L3 through L6, I have a six lumbar vertebrae. Um, those were bulging, two were worse and would cause sciatic type symptoms down my left leg. Uh, and so those were kind of the key ones in my back was pretty bad for a while, but it was funny. I think I mentioned to you before, like if I could keep a neutral spine, uh, I could still deadlift heavy and that was, and squat heavy. And that wasn't an, an issue, but for a while I couldn't at the same time walk without a limp and I couldn't like really flex or extend my lumbar spine uh, past like a very narrow range where that would flare things up. Wow. Uh, so, so your story probably reflects, unfortunately, a lot of guys uh, have been this route and, and at a young age um, too. I mean, how old were you when you were doing the weightlifting and powerlifting? Yeah, early 20s. So like probably, probably started 19 and then through 23, 24 wow. was the weightlifting and then powerlifting probably a little bit closer to 27 or 28 before I, hung in the towel for that. But. So, so really, yeah. I mean, really young to be experiencing those kind of injuries. Uh, yeah, that, that's pretty extensive. So during this time, were you, you were already, were you working with athletes at this time already? Yeah. So it's probably, um, yes, 
right around the end of that weightlifting around 22, 23, that I started working with the teams. Okay. Um, and so you, you trained a lot of uh, speed skaters, which was kind of yeah. like what mostly what you were training, right? Both short and, and long track speed skaters. Yeah. So maybe you can tell me a little bit about that. That's one of the biggest things that I think interests me kind of about your, your, uh, your experience with those kind of athletes, because it's funny, I kind of made, uh, my, my son just started skating, uh, down here in, in Florida. Um, surprisingly we're not in Canada, but hockey in Florida is massive. Um, and, and skating and ice skating and stuff in general is massive. I don't know if it's just because it's so hot down here and they get to be inside <laughs> in the cool air in these facilities, whereas like any other sport you're outside in the heat. Um, yeah. but it's, it's massive down here. I mean, I'm sure it helps that the Tampa Bay lightning are generally always have a pretty good team and whatnot, but I made the comment to to my wife the other day, I said, you know, skating is, is really interesting because I know no history about it in general, but I was like, who decided one day to throw on a pin, a thin piece of metal on the bottom of a shoe and like hit the ice. I, yeah. I was like, who came up with this idea? Because, and then obviously there's so many sports that utilize ice skating. Um, but maybe you can talk a little bit about that because I know that as we get further into this conversation, um, a lot of the way you see movement comes from how you analyze these athletes move. And, you know, it's, it's very popular to talk about sprinting and track and field and running, of course, in field sports for football and things like this, but this is a really unique sport. I mean, it's, it's, it's skating. So, um, you know, maybe you can go into a little bit of, of your experience working with these athletes, obviously also because it is an Olympic sport, um, you know, I, I've commented before, there's a, there tends to be a, a pretty big difference um, in coaching in terms of coaches who coach team sports, like, like field sports and coaches who, who coach Olympic athletes. Um, you know, so maybe you can go a little bit into that and then, and then we'll kind of, you know, dive more from here. Yeah. And this, um, like these experiences uh, tie into like my shift towards more quote unquote functional training. But I guess when I went into it, my perspective and the perspective of my colleagues was, uh, you know, the, what, as far as the role of a strength coach, there's this concept of, of general strength and power qualities. And our job was to develop those. And then, um, as far as, like more athletic things, I was really up to the, the sport coach and the athletes themselves to develop. Um, and, you know, you would may play around with varying degrees of transfer, what you thought might transfer more or less, but, um, that was it. And, and we would try to use various like metrics over the years in terms of jumping on the force plates and, and seeing how those related to their performance on ice. But um, that's how I went into things. And uh, speed skating is not like a lot of other movements, but you have these very flexed bent forward postures so they can stay aerodynamic and, um, and low to lengthen out the stride. And then there's a big frontal plane um, component to that. So really driving to the side to generate forward movement and most of the earlier part of my career was just 
kind of working those general qualities. But, and this took some time to see, but, I, and I, I wouldn't have had this opportunity if I wasn't with the teams for so long and also working at the different um, levels. So working with the youngest ones all the way through. Um, but we had development athletes that could lift more than our national team athletes. Oh, wow. Uh, and same thing in the lab where we did some more of the physiological tests like wind gates and, and different um, bike tests. It was not uncommon at all to have development athletes do better on these kind of raw physiological qualities than, than the national team or the medal winners. And then on the national teams themselves, who was the strongest in the gym was often not the people who were winning medals. And so then the question is like, you know, if they're, if we have these athletes that are already lifting more and that's not the differentiating factor, then do I just keep making them stronger? Like, do, do I take this guy's 400 pound squat to a 420? Um, or do you, you know, look for other things? And, uh, and that was, um, you know, I guess an attempt to stay relevant to like, uh, you know, I want to make a difference and this isn't, um, criticism at anyone in particular, but it's not, the system is set up in a way where we have funding partners. Um, right. when things are going well, no one really cares that much what's happening, but if things aren't going well, you need to be able to demonstrate in your area that you've been making a difference. And so, um, and you know, if you can't do that, then then it's just he said, she said, um, and your job's on the line. So it's job security to have some sort of metric, like even if that was just tracking their lifts in the weight room, or if it's a jump test on the force plates, to say you know this has a correlation of 0.6 or something with their start times. Um, I can show you that they got better over time. Like, therefore I did my job and the problem lies somewhere else. Right. So there's advantages to doing that, but just because something shows a relationship doesn't mean that's necessarily like getting that thing better is going to be the ticket for the athletes. Um, but some people, uh, like, if they can show that they did that, they'll just kind of wash their hands. And that's not as much what I was interested in. I wanted to, to troubleshoot these things. And so it just came down to having better conversation with the, the coaches and the athletes and everyone's, but really what, what we started doing and it was so simple and in retrospect is really ashamed that we didn't do it earlier as a team, but we would just get a lot of slow motion videos of the athletes um ask the coaches um like what do you see that they're doing that like you like or you don't like and so if they're like uh if there was a technical issue that the coach perceived you know the very first step for the coach is just can you cue 
the athlete um, to do what you want them to do. So uh, it's kind of a joke in speed skating, but the coaches yell at the athletes to sit lower all the time. But uh, so say the coach is telling an athlete to sit low and they're not doing it. Um, so you've cued them and it, and it doesn't work. Then what are the next steps? And the coaches would often get pretty frustrated at that point. Like, you know, I've told them to do this. They're not doing it. What else can I do? And so it just became a process of troubleshooting that and saying like, you know, if you want their joints in a certain position, the very first question should be like, do they actually have the passive mobility to do that? And sometimes we would, um, you know, we'd take the athletes onto the table with the physios and, um, and they wouldn't have that range. And so like speed skating typically requires a lot of ankle dorsiflexion, your kind of knees over toes to get low. And, uh, yeah, sometimes the coaches would be telling to do that. We'd take them and actually test their like needle wall and it would be terrible. And then you could passively mobilize their joints and it would be a lot better. And, and so there are multiple circumstances where the, there's probably time wasted cueing someone when they just didn't actually have that ability from even a passive stance. The second like step of that is if they can get there passively, can they just actively pull themselves into that position, some more active mobility? If they can do that, um, do they have the strength or in basic strength endurance to stay in those positions for any amount of time. And some sports are more um, as dynamic than others. There's more cycling in and out of positions. And then for skating, there's a lot of dynamic components, but you do just, you're generally sitting low uh, the whole time. And then if they have the strength to sit in those positions, when you ask them to, um, I think the fourth thing and the more interesting or one of the more interesting things to me is um, then why aren't they doing that? And my hunch is that it often comes down to strength ratios and like where they're strong in their body, because especially when you're doing something fast uh, or high intensity, your body's just going to take the path of least resistance. An example I typically use for this is, um, like squatting, uh, if you want your squat to transfer to weightlifting um, and catching a clean or catching a, stat, a snatch, then you probably don't want to develop your squats in a really hinged, more like powerlifting style position. You probably want to get strong in a, as upright of a position that you can. And even still, if someone is... Uh, uh, most people are stronger on their posterior chain, which you would leverage more if you leaned forward and being more upright is going to tend to place more stress on the quads. Most people being stronger on their backside to some amount, they might get a few reps in perfectly upright, but if they keep pushing that set to where they're getting tired, their hips are going to start to pop up behind them and they're going to then load more of the backside or at least muscles that are fresher in, in that circumstance. And so if you don't pay attention to those details, like uh, if you 
just develop certain muscle groups to where you're strong in a very bent forward position, then that's going to be where your body wants to go when you catch it clean. And so, um, and that really throws the idea of kind of like throws a wrench in the idea of general strength where it's not really a question of just getting like strong generally and then choosing how you want to do it but you need to get strong in very specific ways so that when you're going as hard as you can then your body just use uses the path that you want automatically um and then and that's where um then that kind of more quote unquote functional strength comes in and you think okay well now we've seen a technical problem um my answer to getting you better is not necessarily just like add 20 pounds to your squat but can i get you stronger in a way that makes you default to the pattern that i want to see in your sporting movement and then um yeah that was the start of that process and then and then just playing around with things with different individuals um which leads to doing a lot of unconventional things in the weight room yeah i mean i think you made so many good points <laughs> in that and um and i kind of want to backtrack a little bit and then we'll come back to this but yeah um i think you made some really excellent points that parallel a lot of the way I think and a lot of the way that I, I treat, I don't want to say problems, but I try to solve problems that other people perceive they have or that they may actually have when trying to hit certain positions and stuff like that. And it's a really interesting discussion because all different, a lot of different sports have different biomechanics and, and you know, in, in terms of patterns and things that we want to see that, you know, tend to be more efficient and, and so on and so forth. But I, I kind of want to go back a little bit because I think this is a, an important point to touch on where you discussed in the very beginning, talking about a lot of your, uh, your younger athletes, not necessarily national level or medalers, uh, medal winners, um, or at least competitors are, are, are basically tend to be a lot stronger than your medal lift, lifters or national uh, team members. And so I, I kind of want to talk about this a little bit. I'm curious as to, what sort of exercises and metrics that you used? I mean, I'm, I'm sure I have a pretty good idea, but just so people can get a broader picture here um, of different metrics and exercises that you use to measure strength. I'm going to assume obviously squats and, and pools and things like this, but maybe you can go a little bit into what it, what it is that you use um, to strengthen these athletes and these kind of, the kind of metrics you were either a looking for or just happen to be tracking. Yeah. Um, so, and this is the, uh, well, it's one of the issues of doing good science is that, um, like generally the ideal would be to pick like a couple of things and then you stick with that over a long period of time. Um, so you have a lot of good data in that, but the, you know, the downside is if you like, if your intuition or like the start of some of those answers tells you something different than um, uh, like, do you deviate from that plan? But uh, we did use yeah, basic strength metrics. So like back squats often like trap bar deadlifts seem to be 
friendlier on their backs. And so we gravitated more towards that. Um, and also with speed skating in general, like, uh, you know, this is like a concept Stu McGill talks about, um, but they're spending so much time in flexed postures where like, even if their backs unloaded per se, maybe there's creep in the discs that just gives them a little bit of a posture bulge. And then if you go into a weight room with that there, even if their technique looks put perfect, that still ends up putting a lot of stress on them. So it's very challenging to load skaters who had very strong legs uh, and not necessarily a lot of um, upper body strength. And then just with a predisposition to running into more disc issues. Um, but for that reason, like more and more as the years went by, I was favoring more single leg exercises, whether that was um, just a typical split squat or a Bulgarian split squat. Uh, we did use cleans earlier on and like later on, there are still some athletes that like to use them, but that was something I shifted away from. And over the like nine years or so, cleans were really the only exercise that I had acute injuries from. Um, and it, it's not, especially for a skater, I think we can uh, develop those qualities elsewhere. So I definitely moved away from those. Uh, and then um, we did use the force plates, like I said, trying to track um, counter movement jumps and squat jumps. And then uh, later on, we had a bit of a, there was a test that the CSI developed for Alpine that was a repeated jump test where you do one squat jump every four seconds. And um, so it's a bit of a power endurance test, although we used it more for assessing um, how their asymmetries changed um, with fatigue towards the end of the test. Um, but those were those were really it. And then in the lab, we had, depending on what distance the athletes focused on wind gates uh, and then critical power at a number of different time intervals uh, and max aerobic power. Uh, and then in the last two years, as part of this process of um, sort of troubleshooting, the more, um, uh, I guess, functional aspects with the you know you most people shit on kind of general movement screens but uh we just developed our own movement screen specific for speed skating that we thought would tie into some of the common things we were seeing and that probably gave us more value than any of the strength tests had over the years yeah i don't know what the trend is with that right now you know hating on simple tests like FMS and, and all these other kind of techniques that you would use to just, how does an individual move, right? Like, yeah, <laughs> it isn't, it's funny to see like some of these anti-trends kind of come in all of a sudden of like, where, where these coaches will come out of the woodwork and just be like, oh, that's a bunch of nonsense. Or it's, you know, it's just like, yeah, where does the motivation even come from for some of these things, right? Because we like know that they're useful, but yeah. anyway, anyways, that's, a, that's an entirely separate discussion, but you know, <clears throat> It's interesting that you talk about how there's, cause this is like one of the common 
arguments or at least discussions that I come across with, with coaches um, is this whole idea that athletes who perform the best in the weight room aren't necessarily the best on the track or the field or, or, or whatever. Right. So it brings up the, the, the argument of our athletes who they are and where they are because of, or despite of, right. Because a lot of coaches, strength coaches, I should say, want to take credit in a way. And you kind of explained almost why that is, <laughs> but want to take credit for athletes success, right. In terms of certain metrics, like their speed going up and, 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 and then they try to correlate all these points in their training over and say, well, this is because of this or whatever. But, you know, I, I know from experience from training young and old athletes that it, it would be very hard for me to quantify certain things in terms of like, I use this exercise and it made them this much faster for a lot of reasons that you also gave, right? Like you have to, first of all, you have to have a control, right? So you have to use very specific exercises for a, a duration of time and not use very little. I mean, people don't understand how complicated it actually is to, to, to get athletes in conditions where it would actually make for good science in terms of studying how certain exercises correlate over into performance and things like this. It, it's, it would be extremely time consuming. And like you said, because you work with Olympic athletes, like you're kind of on a time crunch too, right? So you don't have time to waste in terms of this guy's got Olympics only every four years, you know, nationals and, and regionals and all these other events come before that, of course, but it's not like you just have time to sit around and like, well, let's just kind of see what happens. Right. There's more or less like this guy wins a medal or, or he doesn't win a medal. And that's all that really matters. And, and that's one of the biggest things right now in, in fitness too, is like, there's coaches out there that are almost afraid to just be like, I use this and this is what works. Everyone mm -hmm. seems to have a, you know, a need now to put some sort of research behind it or some sort of paper behind it that, you know, I only squat to 90 degrees and here's the 16 scientific studies that, that tell you, you know, it's like, it, it, it's an interesting trend right now because it's like, there's two sides of, of science, right? Like one is you have to first try something to see if it works and if it works great. And then usually like the studies and the research come way after to kind of try to show some correlation statistically or with data and metrics to show that, oh yeah, no, this really did help it or this didn't help it or, or whatever. So it's, it's an interesting argument because, you know, like you said, as strength coaches, one of my biggest goals, and, and I think what you and I have a lot of similarities here is I, I'm kind of a problem solver. I like to solve problems and help people solve problems. Um, and so, you know, it comes down to, do you want to play the game of, well, let me just inflate some numbers and pump some metrics. So I keep my job or do I really truly want to actually help these athletes and help them succeed and, and be pain-free? Cause there's a lot of athletes pushing great numbers on paper, but like, like you've experienced, they're beat up, they're sore, they're injured. And, and really like, if we're keeping our honesty and integrity in, we, we can't really heavily sit upon this correlative evidence of like back squats made them faster or whatever, you know what I mean? So, yeah. And yeah, I think it, uh, it sometimes like, and it, the data can lead you down paths that are not ideal. Um, but so the, one of the challenging things too, um, was that, you know, especially in amateur sport, 
we don't have huge budgets, right. especially in Canada. And uh, speed skating, because there's so many athletes and more metal potential, they tended to get more funding. But you know, as a strength coach, uh, it takes a huge amount of time to do that sports science and data. And that's like time that you have to choose between spending with that or spending the athletes with the athlete. Um, but so there are a number of reasons we looked at force plate data, but, you know, jumping straight up on a plate, um, it involves certain qualities and, you know, speed skating involves much more like frontal plane mechanics than just a, a vertical jump does. Right. Um, and a lot of these tests too were like, we're kind of building them from scratch. There's nothing like cookie cutter where we could just take some sort of system and apply it to skating. We're figuring it out as we go. But um, so someone who has like say a twitchy nervous system, they may be good at both. And then that's why you see a good correlation. But if I, if I just wanted to make someone's test number go up, I could train the hell out of their jumps. I can make them Olympic lift and uh, then they, they jump better on the test. And I can also just like rest them and not really give them much volume. Right. <laughs> uh, but like none of those things that make the test better are, they're often not what's going to make them a better athlete or a better skater. And then just on a, like a, a related point, it's really unfortunate. I've heard a lot of coaches over the years and people in general, um, assume that you can't teach athleticism. And so they would see it as this big shame when we had these like beasts in terms of their physiological or their strength qualities, but who didn't move that well. And they're, you know, just be kind of like, oh, that person doesn't have it. Um, and you know, maybe they stay on the team as a training partner, but they just, they can't put it together in terms of their skating or running or whatever it is. And I think that's changing now. Like, um, there are a lot of ideas about that out there and in my interest in making a quote unquote athletic, unathletic person athletic, which is more the unconventional side of things. But if, if you can do that, um, you've just expanded your talent pool by a huge amount. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, it, that, that is an interesting conversation too, right? Because that is a common argument of like the whole genetic argument is, well, the guy's just athletic and, you know, then there's, there's kids that, you know, maybe aren't so quote unquote athletic that they never even get looked at or time spent on because it's like, you know, it, it, it's one of those things. What's, what's really interesting is um, I, I trained and, and mentored and learned under coach Christopher Summers, who's a U.S. Uh, junior national team coach for men. And he had a, I remember we were, sit, we were teaching a seminar and we were having lunch with him and, and he brought up a really interesting conversation that kind of touches on this is he was saying that a lot of kids, and we'll get to how this relates here in a second, because we're like, how did we segue to this? <laughs> but he was having the conversation of, a lot, what happens is a lot of gymnastics programs 
when kids come into the program, the head coach or, or the better coach usually is put with the, with the older athletes. Right. Mm. But what he did in his facility is he actually trained the beginner athletes. So the kids that would come in, so they kind of had a flip system. Um, and his whole process was, and he talked about this a lot is a lot of his athletes that he's worked with that went on to, to be, go national teams or go to collegiate teams or stuff like this were actually not initially the most athletic kids coming in. And one of the arguments that he made about that was that, and I, and I've actually personally seen this too, and, and maybe you have as well, is that what happens is a lot of kids that are gifted quote unquote, some athleticism, or they're, they're maybe they're a little bit more ahead of their peers. What I tend to find is they actually get bored and burnt out. And so commitment to, you know, competition and, and things like this start to dwindle. And he kind of talked about how he would take a, like a lot of his athletes, like for instance, he talked about um, one of his athletes, it's pretty popular, uh, Alan Bauer, him and his brother both were in his gymnastics programs and Alan was actually the less athletic brother and his, his young, his, I think it was his younger brother was actually a lot better. Um, but what happens, Alan actually went on to, uh, compete for Oklahoma, which is the best men's gymnastics team in the country. Um, and, and you know, and, and he's kind of, I guess, looking for a spot on the national team, which, you know, gymnastics has its own nasty politics and stuff right now, which kind of make it hard to do. But, um, but, it, but he, he kind of talked about that a little bit. And it was, that was kind of an eye-opening moment for me is, is that a lot of coaches tend to do that. They tend to gravitate towards guys or, or kids that are already athletic and kind of put their name behind those kids. But it's like, did you really have an impact on making that guy better? Uh, and then you have some coaches and because it is becoming more popular that are kind of taking these kids and really developing some sort of, of athleticism with them, um, in a skill set, you know, and whether it's the psychological thing of, you know, they're willing to work harder because they don't have it or, or whatever it is, like there's a lot of, uh, different things that kind of come into play there, but that else, that is an interesting conversation. Um, because I've, I've also been in, in, the circumstances of, of training athletes like that too, right. Or, or young kids like this, who they're not the most athletic on the team, but you get them the right kind of training and the right kind of coaching and mentoring. You'd be surprised how fast you can turn someone around in terms of, in my opinion, athletic potential and stuff like that. I mean, kids that would never get looked at to go to colleges, getting D one scholarships and, you know, or, you know, even as high schoolers or whatever, like this kid probably wouldn't get looked at otherwise, but, it just took one off season, you know, he's starting varsity and, and like, there's a lot of different scenarios that I've seen kids in where they kind of go from that, but the not so athletic kid to some decent coaching, some good coaching and it, and it changes that whole thing. So. Yeah. I think, um, like athleticism and you could call it movement efficiency. That's really one of the lowest hanging fruits that, like should be the first thing that coaches check off the box in terms of trying to develop before they worry too much about other qualities. Um, but a few things came to mind there with that story. And um, this may be more of an issue, especially in endurance oriented sports, but when you have a young talented individual and they may be talented for an, or gifted for a number of reasons, but 
it's very common that they'll get picked to go from a young age to more of these national development or national programs. And, you know, you may have a gifted individual who performs really well, but they've performed at a high level without building any kind of base for volume. And then often these national and national development programs have just crazy amounts of training volumes. And it's not as common as it should be to ease someone into that. Um, and there's, you know, to be fair, there's a lot of challenges to like having a group of athletes that you want to train together and trying to manage individual volumes. But um, that's when I think you get a lot of like burnout and you see these kids fade as, um, from pushing them too hard too soon um, because they were good. Whereas someone who is ne not necessarily gifted, they just go through a more normal development plan of different stages of progressively kind of increasing volume. Yeah, and that's, that's um, like a team sports in the US with all the AAU leagues and stuff like that. That's something that you see that's very, very, very common is, is you get this young kid, 14, 15, 16 years old, sometimes even younger than that. Now, you know, you're looking at 12 years old and you know, they're, they're good at their age or whatever. And they go from, you know, maybe playing a season a year to thrown into AAU year round where they're playing some of these kids, when they tell me how many games they play on the weekend, it's you, it's, you go, you know, your knee issues is not rocket science. Like you're playing six basketball games a weekend and you're 12 years old. And, you know, it's like you said, you go from, well, they're really good. Let's get them on all these teams for whatever reason. And then they go play the whole year or, you know, they play on multiple teams during a season. So they'll play in a high school league and an AAU league, a travel league or whatever. And when they told me, yeah, we played six games on Saturday. I'm like, I, have you ever gone to play basketball for just an hour? My yeah. knees and ankles are wrecked. Six games at 12 years old. You know, these kids don't have the physical, they don't have the general prep. They don't have anything to, I mean, even, even if they had a decent amount of general prep, six games of basketball is a lot of basketball on a 12 year old body. So that's an interesting point you brought up because it's, that is a very common, common, common issue um, is just that burnout just physically and psychologically. Cause it's just like, you just get thrown into so much at once. Right. Yeah. And um, there, there's a lot of money that goes into talent ID, especially for, you know, nations and groups that don't um, necessarily have big pools of athletes where they want to try to pick the ones to invest in. But, um, you know, we had a, or the Sport Institute had a project with Canadian Tire. I can't, uh, I'm not sure what uh, details I can divulge here, but basically Canadian Tire has its own team of like statisticians um, normally work on that business end, but they have a lot of free time. And so Canadian Tire started like leasing out their stats people to different groups. And, um, and sometimes it was, uh, you know, like donating that time to various groups that may not be able to afford that work otherwise. But so we had um, those stats people working on partly on talent ID programs. And one thing that came out of that uh, was that there are a lot of different pathways to the top. So you would see 
you know, some of those young, talented people who would just fizzle out. Some of them would make it. And then you would have some people who, from starting at, you know, 12, had barely progressed and then just all of a sudden would drop in to a high performance level. And uh, so really all it came back to was like still looking at everyone as an individual and what can you do for that person to try to elevate them? Not like we want to categorize people because it just, it's easier. Um, and if you can just like categorize them and then send them on their way, um, uh, and maybe we'll get there at some point, but it's not there yet. Yeah. yeah that's, that's, that's a really interesting, I don't know if they, I don't know if they do that here. You have, you have some interesting, cause you actually, you get around a lot of sports technology and stuff, working with the kind of athletes that you work with that a lot of coaches aren't generally going to be around. So it's in different groups and, and that, you know, track certain stats and measurements and metrics and stuff like that. So yeah, that's, that's that's an interesting way of doing that um i want to go into a little bit about i want to talk a little bit about technique and, and because this is something that drives me crazy as a coach and, and i could tell by the way you were kind of describing it like it's, it seems a lot more common sense or at least it should than it really does um and like kind of the argument of what is technique right because i it, it, when i was listening to you go through those points I went, wow, that's exactly how I look at it. And, and, and it, and it kind of blows my mind sometimes that almost not a lot of people do. And that's, you see that a lot. And I'll just kind of talk about from a baseball background, right. Is like, you're playing baseball, you have a kid on the team. He's not, maybe he's not a very good hitter. Right. Um, and then you have the coach making tons of verbal corrections, right? Like elbow up or elbow down or drop the hip or this or that, you know, you get, I mean, you've heard it all. I'm sure. Um, and as I got older, I realized like, you know, as a coach, when you're just throwing out verbal cues, um, whether it's in baseball or speed skating, which you could talk a bit about, or, or even just weightlifting, right. Is, um, you're, you're throwing a lot of cues at somebody, but what, it, but what does that mean to that person? Because a lot of times if you're yelling, if you keep yelling the same cue over and over and over, like that person thinks they're doing what it is that you're telling them to do. So at what point do you stop and go, okay, maybe this isn't like working or maybe this isn't the cue that I need to use. Um, and, you know, the fact that you started with point one being like, do, does the individual have the passive range of motion to even get their body into the position that you want or that you expect to see of them. Right. And I think that that's like a, an interesting point that you made, because for me, in terms of movement, that's kind of the, the first principle that I always look at with individuals. Obviously my tag is the flexible and I'm known for flexibility and, and, and splits and these things, but those are just like very superficial points of, of display and things that I look for. I look as flexibility as the, almost the first assessment tool can the joint actually display the range of motion that we want to see? And just from 10 years of coaching and, and tons of flexibility experience, passive static range of motion is generally going to be the base of the pyramid, right? Like if the joint can't go there passively, it's not going to go there actively. It's sure as heck isn't going to go there under load. 
or, you know, or for a long time. So um, I want you to talk a little bit more just briefly about that, because I know we have a lot to touch on, because I want to get into some of the rotation and all the other stuff that you get into, but we'll, we'll kind of move away from this. But go through that, because it's literally how I think about things, and maybe you can talk about how you, I mean, it kind of may, maybe it sounds stupid to ask how you came to those conclusions or how you kind of figured out that path, because again, it seems so natural. Um, but that's something that I've seen all the time is like, especially people come to me and stuff and they're like, well, you know, I, I haven't, I've been doing this and been doing that. And my, my squad isn't getting any better. My coach is telling me knees out and chest up and this is that and the other. And then I go, okay, well first, like, can you display this range of passive? You know, so maybe you can go into that because I also parallel that sentiment of developing, um, I guess what I call technique, right. Is like, if you want an individual to display a certain mechanic, we have to kind of pick it apart a little bit first piece by piece and see all the different parts that fit together here. Do they work the way they need to work right first? Yeah, yeah it is exactly that. It's like, um, I guess, you know, you hear different sides of the debates of like, um, both treating someone, um, for like, whether we're talking, you know, a therapist, physio, chiro, massage, um, or strengthening someone in ice using more isolated versus using more integrated, um, pieces. And it's like it, there's a time and a place for everything. And like, uh, I like to go back to, uh, I use a lot of like race car analogies. And I think that's a field where there's been a lot of money, um, and investment put into getting cars to perform well. And they've had a lot of developed a lot of science around that, but, you know, at the end of the day, like, what matters is your car and like how much power it gets into the road, but you would still look at each component individually to try to maximize that. And so it, that process there of those four steps, it was just like initially looking at the most integrated thing, the person doing the activity that you want to look at skating or running. And then, then trying to like, if they can't do it, what is holding them back from doing that? And you might start at like the joint that's closest, I guess, to, um, the problem that you see, like, uh, so maybe it is the, you know, we're talking knees over toes and it's the ankle is the most obvious thing. And so, and we just get them on a table and look at that passive range. And then that's our most isolated thing. And then we're just adding the next layer and then the next layer of integration and then the next layer until like you're back at them doing that thing. Um, and maybe under more load or more time. Um, and also like the other interesting thing that came out of that though, is like, uh, sometimes the thing that you thought was going to be the obvious problem, like, oh, it's his ankle joint is not going to have the range. 
sometimes it wasn't. And then, then you're kind of, that forces you to explore more of those relationships in the body. And that's um, probably, that's when I started to get back more into the anatomy trains and fascial lines and that concept of tensegrity. And then seeing, sometimes it was something really disparate um, that you wouldn't expect that was what was holding them, holding them back. Yeah, it's everyone who's listening knows how much I love tensegrity. Um, <laughs> it's one of my favorite things to talk about just because shockingly, not many people have heard of it. Not many people have even gone that route of biotensegrity. And, you know, of course, you have to respect both sides of the science. Like you have to understand, you have to know how levers and, and moment arms and things work. And, but then you also have to respect that at some point, all these things integrate into a much whether you want to say larger or smaller system, because we know that this tensegrity structure works all the way down into the cells, which work. And like you said, it's kind of a layer on top of a layer on top of a layer, which is, if you really think about it, it's, it's kind of all we are, right? We're just layers of, of atoms sitting on top of each other and interacting with each other. And, and, um, anyways, I'll, I'll spare the, the tensegrity too much tensegrity talk. Cause people are probably tired of me talking about it, but I think that, it's an, you're seeing a lot of coaches who are blending more of the traditional, you know, biomechanics, more of the, the levers and the, and the, the, that kind of math with the biotensegrity, you're starting to see some really thing, really interesting things, um, kind of come out of that. You being an example, some of the go-to guys being an example and plenty of other coaches. One of my good friends, who's a Cairo Moses Bernard, actually a fellow Canadian. Um, he's also, you know, all these, individuals that are kind of coming ahead and are and they all kind of are using both sides of that coin. Right. Um, but you know, you, you kind of went from, you know, do we have the passive range? Do we have the active range? Do we have the strength and strength endurance to, you know, handle those ranges? Um, and then you talked a little bit about, of course, um, you know, ba structural balance ratios and strength ratios and stuff, which is, you know, if you've had any decent amount of, of, of coaching education or, you know, physical science education, you know, we know the Russians have used structural balance numbers for so long. Um, of yeah. course, Char fellow Canadian Charles Poliquin, which we're all probably familiar with at this point, um, massive with structural balance. And he used structural balance, of course, for lifts, but also for sports. Coach a lot of Olympic athletes, you know, does this maybe this this athlete needs more posterior chain strength, maybe they need more anterior chain strength, maybe they need more shoulder and, and this, that, and the other. And of course that all ties in with joint integrity and like, can both, can both sides of the joint, you know, disperse load and, you know, we could go down that rabbit hole, but I really like that because that's exactly, um, that's kind of, it's almost like a more natural blueprint that you're starting to see a lot of people are gravitating towards is that, you know, you're starting to see like FRC certs who, who talk about that a little bit. Um, and, and they had that same kind of concept of like passive range, active range, integrating that into, you know, whatever you're trying to accomplish. Of course, the Edo Portal, and there, there's a lot of coaches. It's all kind of out there in, in, in bits and pieces. So, um, no, I really love that, that approach. And of course, you have your own unique structural balance things that you kind of have to find in terms of just your experience working with speed skaters. And then of course it always comes down to the individual, which I think you made a really fantastic point as well is different strengths and different bodies, 
you're going to display a certain amount, a, a certain mechanic, right? And and not all in, in what I am starting to see more or less, which is really interesting, is that you're starting to see a lot of the very, very best at their field really master their own their their own way of executing certain movements that may not usually correlate with how everyone else says they should do it or the way it should look. Um, is that something that you've experienced? Because, you know, of course you have the, the sprint coaches that are like talking yeah. about being very linear and the, you know, the famous, uh, the video of, um, is it, is it Chris Johnson who's critiquing Usain Bolt or whatever? And he's like, Oh, um, Michael Johnson, Michael Johnson, sorry, not Chris Johnson. I don't know why like Chris Johnson, but Michael Johnson's like, yeah, he's not linear enough. And you know, he's, he's leaking energy because there's too much rotation and you're kind of, you have to just sit there for a second and go, this guy's the fastest man in the world. Yeah. Like I get you competed at a high level. He's also a fellow Canadian, right? Trained under, um, under, uh, I can't think of his name, the famous Canadian track and field. Uh, yeah. I can't I mean, even think, I can't even think of his name now, but anyways, it's an interesting video because he's like, yeah, it's, his mechanics aren't optimal. It's like his mechanics are optimal for him to be the fastest guy in the world. So I don't, it's, that's an interesting argument. So is that something that you've kind of experienced a little bit in, yeah. in you know, the athletes that you've dealt with? Um, so there's yeah a few concepts that come up there. Like one more people are, like you said, are understanding tensegrity. Um, and one thing I see probably more from the, the movement oriented individuals is, um, there's this belief, I guess, that people should be able to move however they want to move. And like tensegrity to them is almost the only thing that matters. And I think there are some realities about the human body, um, where there are some things that are going to be better or more optimal than others, almost always. Um, so I like, uh, I posted something about this with, uh, like, how would you protect yourself from a bear? Like, um, would you, you know, duck and cover, like, so it's just your back is exposed or would you do a back bend and have your full front side exposed? And uh, like another, an extension of that analogy is, if you were just going to roll down a hill, like, would you tuck and do a somersault or would you again go into a back bend, like grab onto your ankles and then have the front side of your body, like in contact with the ground. And most people would understand, like, it doesn't matter how well you're holding yourself together. You don't really want your face and your groin and everything like yeah, rubbing against the ground. Like our, you know, we have, some areas that are more sensitive to the external environment. That was typically like our underside when we we're quadrupeds. Right. Um, and then you had one side of the body um, that was more exposed to the external environment. And that's, I would say in general, um, is more ready to like accept or transfer forces with that environment. But um, so I do think there are certain more optimal patterns in movement. Yeah, I absolutely think that in any given sport, we have not um, exposed all of those yet. And so I think there's could be like 
um, untapped potential in a lot of different things as far as like things that will look weird and unique now, um, but touch on more of these concepts of kind of the ideal. And, you know, a very simple one of that is um, just rather than having like, you know, the linear arm swing, like you mentioned, whether you keep the elbows at 90 degrees or not, but see most good runners have some degree of like pronation and supination through their arm swing, which drives uh, either internal rotation with pronation or external rotation. And that has downstream effects on what your spine is doing and how um, your spine transfers energy throughout your body and drives movement and um and there's there's not really many people aware of that or that take advantage of that in movement and so you still see a lot of um linear aspects of movement coached but i do think like um you know different bone structure different levers there's going to be some things unique to the individual but I, some things will have to be the same. So I don't think we'll really see anyone that deviates too much um, from what the ideal probably is, especially as more and more athletes and individuals adopt better mechanics in general, that just wow. pushes the bar higher and higher to get more ideal. Um, um, yeah. Yeah, it's it's an exciting future because, like you said, I mean, it's. I, I have to agree. I don't think we've really tapped like the the uh, like the maximal potential of what human bodies can do and the way they display certain mechanics. I think it's just going to get more from here. And of course, like you said, there's obviously individual biomechanics. You know, like Usain Bolt is a lot taller than most sprinters, so he, he was able to have longer strides and. You know, there's there's always going to be some outliers um, in, in certain things, but uh, you know, for the most part, there's obviously, um, you know, if we look at uh, things like, um, um, I'm trying to think of what the word is now. It lost me, or I lost it. But it's um, when we look at like like you said, kind of like bias integrity and seeing how all these things piece in, it is interesting you know, before we even started the podcast, I kind of talked about how when you're running, it's a little bit more of an open chain environment. So you don't maybe don't really feel the need or, or the, the requirements to like rotate and twist and torque through space. Mm -hmm. One of the things that I, when I started biking a lot more, that's one of the, the positions that I realized it the most and because you're more fixed to a bike, like in terms of your hands are holding handles, your feet, you know, depending if you're, I, I use clips and my feet are attached to the pedals. One of the biggest things that I notice on a bike is even the momentum and the, the need to drive power on an object that's very linear, there's a lot of rotation occurring that I never really noticed before. And, uh, you know, I kind of talked about it where my, my head wants to rotate over the foot driving um, through the ground, or, or through the pedal, um, you get this weird torquing angle of like you're pulling up on one handle and you start to push the other. If you start to just take a bike up a steep hill and you're going to start to notice this rotation, you start to naturally kind of develop to a body. And like I said, the only reason it stands out so much to me on a bike is because you're fixed to the object. 
So you start to get the feedback of, you know, you're interacting with this linear thing that is obviously not going to move. Yeah. You're generating torque within it to kind of create a lot of power. So, um, but then of course, if you look at slow motion of sprinters and, and things like this, you see this very easily. Um, you know, a lot of this torque and this rotation that people create, um, you know, to, to generate strength. And then even in, in a more linear environment in weightlifting and powerlifting and things like this, funny enough, it's one of the things we try to combat, but you start to see more rotation and more torquing and more twisting as an athlete, um, fatigues because I mean, really, I guess the argument could be made. It's probably the more optimal way to create, um, tension by using those different, you know, curved lines and, and things like that. So, um, so you eventually made a transition here, right? So you're more in a, or I guess what was the transition point for you? Because your training um, has evolved quite a bit, whether it's permanent or temporary. Um, just for the record, he was an incredibly strong lifter. Um, he sent me quite, Nicholas sent me quite an impressive squat because we did go back and forth a little bit on squatting technique and stuff, which was, which is kind of interesting too, because, you know, um, I, a lot of people kind of like message me and I'm sure you've seen it. I, I've been talking a lot about squatting recently, but I kind of go against a lot of what is taught in squatting in, in terms of teaching all this external torque and, you know, a lot of these patterns that you see knees up and chest up and all these other things. Um, I tend to have almost a more opposite approach where I try to utilize a lot more internal rotation in a squat and, and, and things like this, um, which we talked a little bit about, but you made a transition point. So what was, obviously the injuries kind of threw you out of Olympic weightlifting and powerlifting, but regardless of injuries, a lot of guys hold on to it anyway. Um, so for you, what made you, what was kind of the tipping point for you where you were like, well, let me get away from more of this traditional approach, so to speak, this more dogmatic strength and conditioning approach of like testing metrics and using power cleans and squats and stuff to test athleticism. And where, where did you make the switch and why did you make the switch? And, and, and what was involved in that process in terms of where you are now? Yeah, it was, um, so again, it was after probably the, uh, Sochi Olympics, but, uh, seeing again, just that difference in, about strength, not being the answer, but then for myself kind of being taken out of the bit out of the powerlifting and weightlifting game and just, and wanting to do something to stay moving for my body. Um, but we also had, uh, leading into Sochi, we had a really great physio with our team, uh, Jenny Delich, who had a background in Pilates and she just started introducing a core session um, with the speed skaters and going through more Pilates type movements where they do work through like spine flexion and um, like more segmental control. And there's a lot of limitations to Pilates and it does tend to be still kind of stuck in that sagittal plane relative to other things. But seeing anecdotally the difference that made for them uh, was big for me. And then Jenny uh, moved on after Sochi and I just, I wanted to try to pick up where she left off and still at least provide that service for the team. And so I spent more time with her outside of um, our group 
and started to pick that up. Um, but then again, just wanted to troubleshoot myself and the athletes. And so I had my own sort of steps that we laid out and I just started playing around with things and me, I, I've always like played around, I guess, with like different concepts and quote unquote weird things in the weight room. And that's just part of my learning process. And, you know, when, when I had all the teams, there was a bit of uh, a process where I would try things out. I would always try things out on myself first, even if it was just like a different set or rep scheme. And then I might try that with some friends and then maybe that gets introduced at like the development level and then and then works its way up before I'm let, ready to like introduce something new to the national team athletes. But so when I when I got more interested in unconventional training, um, there was a lot of exploration that was going on myself, but then that's what opened myself up to the other things in the industry. And I remember years earlier, a friend had showed me a video of uh, Naudi from Functional Patterns talking. And, you know, he was just uh, in his typical tone at that time was saying, like, you know, if you do deadlifts and squats, you're stupid and it's a stupid exercise. And um, yeah, very antagonistic tone <laughs> for yeah. anyone who doesn't know who he is, which I'm sure probably a lot of do at this point, but everything was just pure antagonism. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, you know, I didn't give that any credit then and, and he was demonstrating some like pendulum type exercises in those videos and I didn't really see what, um, the point was then because my own brain was oriented around developing muscles and, and more like the output of the nervous system. But when I started to take a look at some of that stuff online, and see it more from the perspective of fashion, um, tensegrity. And I think one thing I really found pendulum work useful for, and like more than, uh, you know, just a typical kettlebell swing is the timing aspect. Uh, and so like part of what athleticism is, is just, um, learning how to time like rhythm and learning how to time your movements in respect to like your own body. So one section in relation to another section, and then also in response to external cues. And so like the, you see a similar thinking just around most agility drills, but there might be progressions from like, you know, uh, a cone drill where everything's sort of predetermined that you're going through versus adding stimuli that you know are coming to adding stimuli that you don't know are coming. And when you start to do like a kettlebell pendulum exercise, there's going to be like, you have this very long lever and there's going to be a point in the range where it's either more or less mechanically advantageous for you to exert force on that thing or do some other type of movement. And you can just get a lot of reps in that way and learn how to time your body and sort of teach it rhythm in relation to this 
and balance in relation to this weight that's swinging back and forth. And then the more weight you add with that, the less forgiving it becomes. Uh, so, you know, if you have a five pound kettlebell, you could probably still move whenever you want to move and get away with it. But especially if you're a smaller individual and you have a 40 pound kettlebell, now maybe there's that one window where if you don't move exactly, then, then it's throwing you off balance and you're falling over. And most um, sort of conventional types of lifting don't teach any of those aspects of rhythm or timing. You, even if you're doing a multiple rep set of squats, you have, it's almost usually a series of single efforts. Um, and you just try as hard as you can on everyone. And that's often not the ideal for any movement that's kind of cyclical. So another example in that regard is like, you know, an underhand med ball heave and a kettlebell swing are very similar movements. If you're doing a med ball heave, what happens after you throw it doesn't really matter. Like if your goal is just throw that thing as far as you can, you can put absolutely everything in your body possible to move in that forward direction. And then if you have to take a few steps and stumble, it no one cares. If you're doing a kettlebell swing, almost the same movement, but if you put that same effort in, then what happens to your next rep? It's gone. So there's um, an ideal amount and timing of force that means over five reps, 10 reps, you get the most into it, which isn't the maximum. And then right. learning some of this in skating as well, like uh, many skaters push for too long um, on the ice. And so there's sort of an early push or early pressure they talk about where you get this work done in the ice in the earlier part of the stride and there's still a follow through, but you're not like really trying as hard as you can just to extend your leg all the way to the very end. But the way you do a lot of lifts in the weight room is just accelerating the entire time. Um, and sometimes you exaggerate that even with, um, like bands or chains. So the fact that the leverage gets better means you don't have to slow down. And so as your legs are extending in a squat, you're just pushing harder and harder and getting faster. And, you know, sometimes you pop the bar off your back, depending on the load. Yeah. I do that frequently just yeah. for fun. Yeah. Just yeah. use that momentum to pop the bar over your head or whatever. Right. I mean, yeah. That's it's an interesting point. I don't want to interrupt you, but I do kind of want to highlight this for a second. Cause you know, it's like, um, it's like seeing, trying to teach like strong shoulder pressers, how to push press. And you start to see that, like, there's a lot of, like, if you watch a lot of weightlifters that don't look like they're extremely strong through their upper body in terms of muscular development, but they can like push press or push jerk a crazy amount of weight over their head. And you're like, how on earth did they get like, how do they get that weight overhead? You know? Um, yeah. but I think you talked about it a little bit in terms of timing the exact point of the movement where the leverage becomes the best for you to exert force. And that's one of the biggest mistakes you'll start to see in a push press is they kind of push and then they go to like shoulder press it off their shoulders versus allowing the momentum 
and waiting for that exact timing to push the weight overhead and, and lock out. And, um, you know, even in a squat, you, you know, it could be done either way. I guess it depends on who's coaching you too and teaching you to, to look out for these things. But, you know, you have guys that just like grind out the reps, but then you have really efficient squatters that utilize the bounce perfectly in the technique on using that, like that elastic rebound is they're very relaxed. And I don't mean relaxed, like they have no tension in their body, but they're relaxed up into the exact point that they need to exert force where it's most mechanically advantageous, which is usually when the knees are around parallel. So that a lot of people will bounce to that bottom part of the squat and then exert force from there. And you see that you start to see people become very efficient. You have both sides, you have like really efficient technique where they utilize that at the right exact amount of time. And then you have, of course, the other side, which is like, I'm just going to brute force my way through this, no matter what it takes and, and get it done, no matter what it looks like or, you know, what I'm utilizing to do it. But um, yeah, that, that's, that's, that's really interesting. Cause it's the same about like, they talk a lot about that foot contact and sprinting. Like a lot of guys are, you're on the ground too long um, or even jumpers, right? Like, you know, maybe you're, maybe you're absorbing too much. You're squatting down too low versus using that, that, that leverage at the right second to, to release and jump higher. So, um, you know, you even said with speed, they keep their skate in the ice too long. Right. So is it, are those the ones that you you tend to see that they're just tend to be just stronger. So they're trying to kind of muscle their way into it in certain aspects or. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Like, uh, they're often they were, well, get an anecdotal. It seemed to be the stronger ones. They know how to move weights in the weight room and to like drive and accelerate with their nervous system. And then it's just more that um, timing aspect. And it's really, you know, it's hard to coach this sometimes, but, um, you know, when you want to go faster, whether it's running or skating, often the thought is just to try harder. Um, and, uh, and then that leads to like getting more rigid and losing the timing where sometimes if you just focus on being relaxed and focus on the timing that leads to a faster speed, even though it feels like you're not necessarily trying as hard. Well, that's like the whole idea behind WEX, what do you call them? Pro pulsers. Yeah. It's, it's timing that, that exact contact where, you know, and, and kind of the flow and the rhythm, right? Because there's a rhythm to movement. Um, yeah. And that's the whole idea behind that invention that he created was, you know, as the mad scientist and kind of crazy guy you can seem to be. Yeah. It's like, yeah. it's it's very, you go, wow, that's, that's actually really creative because of the weight and stuff like that. Like you said earlier, you're going to know with a certain amount of weight, the rhythm being off, right? And that's the whole idea behind the invention of, of, of the propulsors. Um, and so now, obviously you're brought into the conversation because just from what I've seen subjectively from your training is there's a lot of parallels between these different, you know, column systems or whatever, but the GOTA and the WEC, and you kind of have a blend of the two. And obviously you're doing your own thing because you have your own individual um, inputs into your training and what you're doing with your athletes. But, you know, maybe you can talk a little bit more about these things that you're seeing, um, because you are utilizing, and I will say this, you're not a, you're not a small guy. You're a pretty big guy. And obviously like a lot of bigger guys are not 
do not, are not graceful runners. They're, they're, they, when they run, it's, it's heavy and sloppy and, but you move really well. Um, just from my own opinion, you know, everyone else I'm sure can come to their own conclusions, but you move really well, you move gracefully, you move very softly. And I don't mean softly, like, <laughs> but right. just, you know, you, you've really developed that quality. So to go from a guy who was like squatting, you know, well over double body weight, and, and now you're in moving and running really well. And, and you're utilizing a lot of these things that people are talking about now with the outside edge of the foot and stuff like this and these pivot points and stuff. So maybe you can talk a little bit about, about this type of training from, from your eyes and from your experience and how you're using it and how you're using it in your athletes. And, you know, maybe you can even get into some of the agreements and, and disagreements that you see with some of these other systems that are utilizing more of these, you know, methods of, of rotation and, and pivot points and stuff like that. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I'll, I'll preface that by saying, uh, and we chatted before, but I haven't done any of the official, um, courses or materials from WEC or, uh, GOTA. And I did the very basic stuff from FP, um, okay. moving on from that, but, um, yeah, I think like probably the most basic concept that people, one of the most basic concepts people need to understand for good movements is just that your entire body should be working towards the same goal at this roughly at the same time. And, uh, so I think that's often what, um, go to tends to highlight as energy leaks but where you can see in slow motion video you have parts of someone's body that are moving in one direction and then parts that are moving in the opposite direction right so uh and again that's like a lot of that involves the rotational mechanics and movements and it's still very fresh for a lot of coaches and uh, a lot of people to think about rotation and, and movement at all. And like that, uh, I shared that paper recently about, um, it was a 2019 paper about lumbosacral axial rotation torque in running, but just basically meaning the force of the pelvis twisting one way and then twisting the other way during running and finding that to be one of the main differentiators of fasting faster running speeds. But they say in that paper, like it was really interesting to find this because running still considered to be like, uh, linear, no plane. Yeah. Yeah. Linear. Well, it's a really interesting concept because sometimes I'm out of tune with a lot of these old school, hmm. what, traditional concepts, like, cause the way I always learned about the pelvis was, was it's like a pendulum. It's a figure eight or mm. infinity type of motion where you're getting this simultaneous up and down motion, but also forward and back. So you're getting this, this rotation right around the sacrum that, you know, a lot of, interestingly enough, a lot of chiros and doctors will say, Oh, you shouldn't have any rotation in your sacrum. Your sacrum's too mobile. Like it moves too much. Or, you know, you start to hear things like this, but it's like, I'm, I'm fortunate. I actually worked for a physio from the Netherlands. Um, so he didn't have American education. His was a European education. He worked with soccer teams and he was a professional soccer player as well. Um, but that was his, the highlight of his whole practice. 
was this, you know, sacroiliac uh, pelvic rotation. And that a lot of the reason people have the issues that they have, and it's become a big part of what I do is you, you're missing this rotation factor from, you know, joints that are kind of important to be rotating, but then we're basically either trained out of or taught that they shouldn't rotate. Right. So, um, sometimes when people like, when people have this conversation, I'm like, it, I'm a little disconnected because I was like, well, I'm fortunate, I guess, that I was never taught that like these things shouldn't move, but you know, but a lot of the the main bulk of, of individuals coming out of educations, um, you know, physical educations and stuff like this are taught that uh, it's, yeah. it's quite interesting. Um, to think. Yeah. And I think I, another problem has been that, um, it has not often been the case where the people that understand the anatomy well, or the people that understand movement and performance well. And it's the old cadaver science versus like, yeah, actual in the field training, like, Okay, you know how a body works on a table, dead and lifeless, um, but you've done little to no studying yeah. how it moves, you know, <laughs> in our physical universe. Yeah. So. And that's, um, that's an interesting thing with, uh, with Gota because I think, you know, they do a very good job at choosing language that the average person will understand. Right. Um, but at least from what I understand, most of the, those guys don't have much of a formal education on the right. sports science side. And then so they get challenged by like these sports science people or, or the chiros or the physios, and they're just communicating in two different languages. Yeah. And, and then the, uh, and then, yeah, that crowd often doesn't like, seems to have trouble grasping the basic concepts that Goat is talking about. That, that's, that's a problem in and of itself is com communication and how you communicate things to people, because that's, that's a massive, look, if you've coached people in person, you know how important communication is. It's like the utmost important thing. I think we've, <laughs> we've come to realize here is like the things you say and how you say them and how the other person is perceiving them. And then like, you know, now demonstrating what you're communicating is, is pretty important, right? So that, that's a problem in and of itself with these guys is that they use a lot of words and these big concepts and terms and like, well, so that normal people and even well-educated people aren't, aren't going to understand what it is that they're talking about anyway. And it's almost like this, it's almost done intently to make you feel stupid, right? Like, oh man, I don't know what any of that means. So I'm just an idiot. And yeah, they must be right because they know all these big words and it is sad to see because yeah. you sit back and you go, well, I mean, these guys know what they're talking about in terms of being able to just subjectively or objectively look at something and go, okay, that makes sense. And you don't need to have this massive scientific, you know, Webster version of like why it is the way it is. Yeah. Like you can, I think it's important for people to understand that like, if you see something and you're, and that's the way that you're observing something, you don't have to instantly understand everything that, it, that lies underneath that. Right. And, yeah. and that was like one of the big things that I was taught by my mentor when I first started coaching people was like, no one cares the words and the sign, like 
they are normal people and they're like, you just have to be able to talk to them like that. Um, and it's funny because in Moses, Bernard, who I did my first podcast with, he said the same thing when he first went out of school, he like, I guess was working with like one of the top surgeons in the area in Florida, a spinal surgeon or something like that. And he, he, he tells us, told the story of how he went back to his books and like made sure that he knew all the words and knew all the definitions and like, you know, everything. And so he said that he went to go present like MRIs and of course is breaking it all down in these big words. And, and the surgeon goes, look, he goes, uh, you know, he starts breaking it down. Like, you know, talk to me like, uh, you know, like, like I, don't have a science degree. And so he kind of, okay, talk to me like I'm in high school. Okay. Boom. Talk to me like I'm in blah, all the way down to talk to me. Like I'm a toddler. Talk to me like I'm three years old. Can you, can you communicate what it is you're saying to a three-year-old? Yeah. Yes. Talk like that with everybody. And I think it's, I think it's, it's simple, but, and, and, but that's really the truth of it. Right. Is, is if you, these guys sit so much on this education that they, they can't actually relate it to, to, to normal people or to movement or to any of this, because, you know, I would even argue they don't even understand the movement. They just understand, they just understand the theory from the book, but they, they, there is no practical application of their knowledge or education, which is, which is a trend you're starting to see, I think across all fields. And I mean, definitely here in the U S I don't know how it is there, but you know, where, theoretical education is so highly valued that there's very little practical experience. It's not val- I mean, it's not valued on a superficial level, right? Like, um, well, what are your, you know, I've been, I've never been asked what my certifications are ever. I've been coaching for almost 10 years. No one's ever stopped and be like, where'd you go to school? Who'd you, what system did you learn under? What degree, you know, like no one's, it's like, can you do it or can you not do it? So I've been fortunate, but I know there are other people, especially like those guys too, many others as well, but okay. You don't have your masters in physiology or whatever, but it doesn't mean you can't understand movement. I mean, some of the best coaches I've ever learned from read about or whatever, these guys weren't highly educated. They just had real world practical knowledge and they could look at an individual and they can make corrections and they can make them better and they can communicate on a basic level. And it's like, it's almost all those basic points that are entirely missing from most coaching. Now it's like a pissing contest of who knows the bigger words and who knows, you know, and so on and so forth, not to rant there for a second, but I think it's an important point you bring up, right. It's just because somebody doesn't, you know, I think there's a fine line. Like it's good. You're going to have, you have to know a little bit. You you should know some basic anatomy and some basic biology and know these things. But in terms of these, these like vast complicated semantics that these guys get into, it's like, who cares? Like you're the only one who actually cares. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Like the person who's injured and just wants to get out of pain. Like, I promise you, they don't care if, if, if it works and this communicates well to them and it's easy to receive, they don't care. You know, they don't care what your degree is or what words, you know, or don't know or whatever. So it's, yeah. And, uh, you know, this is a whole other conversation, but I've had a few discussions about the issues that say SNC and training faces as an unregulated industry. And, you know, lots, some people want to push for more regulation in a professional association. Um, and, you know, basically, and it's a natural thing, like if you've invested a ton of money into your education, like you want that investment 
protected and you don't want Joe Blow who, who maybe does know nothing to right. be taking work from you just because he like has a better body and he markets himself better. Right. Um, not, we're not calling out any gym shark athletes or anything like that. Yeah. Yeah. hundred yeah, percent. No, I, it's, um, it is an interesting argument because there's both sides, right? And I think there's like a middle ground for it. Um, I mean, that, that it's already kind of failed here. I mean, you know, the national strength and conditioning association went up against CrossFit when CrossFit became super popular because obviously <laughs> CrossFit threw some wrenches in, uh, in how they operated. Um, and they lost, they lost the, the court battle here. And, 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 you know, it's, you know, America's it's has its own attitude about the way we regulate what should and what shouldn't be regulated and all these things. But, um, yeah, that's an interesting conversation in itself too. Cause yeah. Like, Cause there's well, both. Yeah. I've, I've run into like, like you said, just as many individuals who have that education, but not the practical experience. Um, and I think, this will be not easy to implement, but I think down the road, probably a better option is like keeping things less regulated per se, but really good tracking of the results yeah. in, that someone gets. And then, and then maybe bringing back some more like old school mentorships, but uh, no one does that anymore. It's crazy. Yeah. Cause I've had I, so many good ones. Yeah. You know, most, most, most kids, this is a good conversation. Most kids coming out of college. So that's an interesting thing about that subject too, right? Is because investment's going to have bias, right? Which is, which, which is hard in itself because there is also a lot of bad stuff taught at university level where you're just like, that's horrible. I can't believe you spent the amount of money you spent learning that. But so it, regulations would have to almost come back on both sides. Cause it's like, okay, if we're going to regulate people to certain education, we need to go back and we need to look at all this and make sure that this is all still valid. This all still holds up. Um, because there are certain points that are, you know, again, like I still have friends coming out of school. Like we were taught not to take our knee over our toe. It's like, yeah. you know, okay. Uh, well, yeah. <laughs> but they're so attached to it because they spent $80,000 to learn that thing. And it's like, nothing is going to convince them otherwise. And it's like, so there is a bit of bias that comes with just that amount spent on that education or time invested because again, four years of your life or six years or eight years or whatever, it's, it's, it's hard, you know, apparently the, uh, the university of Calgary's ranked one of the best like sports science institutes in North America. But, you know, I remember being in a 400 level class and they're, teaching that, um, you know, a good program is like one set of 10 of 15 different machines to get all the body parts. And then, you know, they do one cause there was a paper that said like when they compared one to three, there wasn't really an extra benefit to three. And then, yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, that's, that's why you got to appreciate that's what I mean. You know, Charles Pollockman was one of those strength coaches that for a long time, people may not realize because of his popularity now was like outcasted by, he was ridiculed by a lot of these, you know, top official strength coaches, scientists, whatever, because a lot of the things that he did kind of went against, but now advanced two decades, we're starting to realize like, oh, a lot of what he was saying was true. A lot of what other people were saying was true. But the, the interesting thing about him that people don't realize is he wasn't just selling I mean, maybe in some cases he, you know, maybe uh, took things a little too far or whatever, but 
he was he kept a lot of data yeah. blood tests i mean he kept so much information i mean at least the stuff that i learned when he talks about the records that he had on his clients it was like years yeah. and years of every single program everything they ate blood tests every month you know i mean just like yeah. an insane amount of information and so you know while he wasn't necessarily like a quote-unquote researcher yeah. you know like that wasn't his profession more or less being in a lab but he had tons of metrics and information and that's the thing about guys like you and i it's like if you're doing your job right you have client files you can see are they progressing are they not making progress what are they eating are they losing weight are the weights going up did they get injured here at this point you know like you have certain metrics and things that you can measure that kind of like you know show whether what you're doing is working or not and then obviously of course depending on what field you're in like okay if you're training bodybuilders are they getting bigger are they getting more symmetrical these are all objective things that we can look at you know flexibility is an easy one it's like this is how much range of motion they have and now they can display this range of motion so obviously whatever you're doing is working you know fat loss same thing like are they physically losing weight do they do their photos are they leaner like <laughs> there, there are certain things that it's a little easier than 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 performance metrics that's a lot harder it's a lot more difficult jumping and running and all these different things. it's way more difficult to to really correlate you know i guess the what you're doing with the success in those it's it's hard to yeah it's hard <laughs> it's not that easy <laughs> and i think uh you know videos are very valuable and uh and they kind of get looked down a bit from the sports science crowd because well, people want something you can put in a spreadsheet so it's easy right. to run stats on it. But um, most of the time, like if you've made a meaningful difference, like those things become really apparent. And I imagine in the future, like there'll probably just be better AI that can start to yeah. present those things numerically for you. But, um, um, you know, back on the point of like, you know, communication, I'd actually done a, a presentation on this a while ago, but um you know we tend to think of logic as sort of the height of good thinking and a good logical method and when you look at it's einstein's quote i think and i was just talking uh about some with someone about that today but uh you know if you can't explain something to a six-year-old you don't understand it well enough and that's basically a form of analogy or you could call it analogical thinking or thinking in analogies um but so sometimes for someone that thinks in logic like something may seem very simple to you and maybe we're talking about like you know these joint movements and whatever else but you may have forgotten that it was like an eight-year process of logical steps for you to get there and so when you're trying to talk to someone without that background that's a big gap to fill and you can yeah. fill it, but it takes time. But if you can find an analogy that closes that gap. hundred um, percent. Yeah. Then that's, you can... Yeah. That, that's a freaking, I don't mean, that's a great point. Um, it, it closes the time lapse. Yeah. Uh, which I never really thought about. Just, I think good coaches just tend to move that direction anyway. I mean, it's just like, even when you were describing the, the, um, the out in, in out and talking about the rubber band. And it was like, Oh, okay. Yeah. Like that makes 
total sense. And, and even uh, just naturally coaching, especially if you've coached a lot of people, you start to use, of course, because you realize like they don't understand it the way you understand it. And they, you also don't want to take eight years for them to understand all this site. So like, what's the best analogy, you know, in the beginning, you used a race car analogy. A lot of people do understand that, okay, the engine puts out so much power. We need that torque to go through the drivetrain to the wheels. Can the wheels handle the torque coming from the engine to the drivetrain? Can the tire handle it? If the tire can't handle it, we need different, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. So when you break things down like that, it does make it a lot easier for people to go, okay, that makes sense. And it's almost like levers and stuff like that. Why the math on those can tend to be complicated. It is easier to understand a lever than it is to understand like biotensegrity because it's just, it's, it's a little easier in terms of like dissecting it down and going, yeah. it hinges and it does the, you know, versus like, pieces. yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and yeah, that race car one, and that's, you know, very close to, um, analogy I use, but, uh, you know, if you have a car and you want to measure the horsepower it's getting to the road and it's got like completely bald tires, uh, or a flat tire even like do you want to try to give that car a bigger engine for it to go faster right and that's really the way a lot of um strength coaches operate like where say the flat tire in this case is like uh an athlete has completely flat feet with collapsed arches and you're like well i'm the engine guy so I'm going to make you squat more to give you a bigger engine, regardless of whether that's, uh, you know, maybe fixing that foot gives you way more horsepower to the actual movement than squatting more does. Um, that's a good point. I mean, that's the best way to look at it really. Yeah. I mean, most people can think with that, you know, um, but you're a hundred percent right on that. Like, I never really broke it down by the individuals within systems, right? Mm -hmm. But of course, if you're the if you're the engine guy, you want to make the biggest, baddest engine you can make, right? Yeah. And the tire guy gets kind of overlooked, like. <laughs> but you know, if you know anything about cars, you know, cool, you have an 800 horsepower engine, but you can only get 600 of the wheels. Yeah. But then. You know, that's like the funny part about all these little Hondas and stuff, right? It's like, okay, you're only putting out 300. Or maybe we put a turbo in there. You're getting out, but we got you up to 600. So you can only get out 600, but through the suspension and the drivetrain and the tires, you're getting all that horsepower on the road. Whereas, you know, this big old Dodge over here is it's got a big engine, but it losing all that power uh, once, once, once the rubber meets the road. Right. So. Yeah. Like, even uh, like, if you just ask most people to divine what strength is, I don't think you'll get a very good answer. Um, and in, they see like strength is something you build in the weight room, but it, it really is all about like energy transfer. And you do have like, um, it doesn't like, if you're coaching an athlete, it doesn't matter how much energy you can transfer into a squat. It matters like, how does this lead you to transfer energy better in your sport? And there's a million, there's a, diff, a lot of different ways to address that. And you should be trying to find like the ones with the best cost to benefit ratio. All right. Yeah.
And, uh, you know, it's just, uh, well, it's human nature, but just even in terms of our thinking processes, we try to save energy by saying like, well, I have a system that works. It gets, I know it gets this result. So I'm, why would I spend time thinking about other possibilities? Like I'll just keep doing this. Yeah. Yeah. I've been in, I've been in that scenario, you know, and evolve with people in that scenario. It's like, like common group thing type of situation where it's like, eh, it works. Why, why, you know, so we're just going to roll with it versus like, yeah. Whereas I'm like, can I make this more efficient? Can I find, you know what I mean? Like the, I start, to, I just can constantly kind of, and I'm, I'm sure you just are the same exact way. It's like, I'm trying to constantly find holes, constantly find where this can improve, constantly find whereas versus like, well, it works for two out of 10 people. So I'm just going to gamble on those two out of 10 people. And you know, yeah. where I'm trying to like get the ratio up, like, okay, maybe it does work for two out of 10. Cool. I'm, I'm helping two people. I was, you know, that weren't getting help, but can I now help three out of 10 can I help four out of 10, five out of 10 and constantly refining that process down. Um, yeah. which is, which is an art in itself. Right. And it's like, really the good coaches are trying to do that. Um, and, and there's a lot of motivations, uh, to do that, like, um, to take that route, but even like the most basic one, <laughs> you know, it gets boring to do the same. Like if, like how many years did I like was just correcting squat technique and then <laughs> just, uh, repeating this, the same things. And, um, like it's stimulating to solve problems and to solve more complicated problems and develop that ability within yourself. And there's, you know, still times where you'll go back to those same things, but you just you know, develop a bigger toolbox. You have more options. Yeah. And more interesting for everyone. Yeah. No, that hundred percent better toolbox. And then you just, you have the right tool for the right job when you need it. Right. Um, so now this is what everyone's going to want to know. Um, obviously just because of the Goda and, and the WEC stuff, um, right. the, out, the outside edge. Hmm. Now we, we briefly talked about, you know, is there really an efficient technique for everybody, et cetera. But when, in, in terms of foot planting, foot planting and pivot points in terms of energy transfer moving forward, obviously just from watching the work that you do, this is, this is a concept you heavily believe in and, and, and kind of back up and say, yes, this is the way that we should be moving. So can you go a little bit more into, um, just your experience with that, what you've kind of learned through this process and how you have come to that conclusion? Cause I know you have made parallels with the way speed skaters move. And also I know you do a lot of sprinting and, and follow a lot of these and you do your own running this barefoot runs on the track, by the way, which is incredible. Um, so, but you know, maybe you can go into this because this is the argument right now. This is the, you know, can we go to the inside edge of the foot and, and, and still be durable and move well, or should we be exerting all of our, or most of our energy, most of the time to the outside edge of that foot and the pivot point, like around the fifth metatarsal, the pinky toe. Um, yeah, I think like, um, you know, you use a lot of qualifiers there, like most of the time, which is what I would say the same thing. And that doesn't mean you can't do the other one, but I do think the outside is more the ideal. And the way I demonstrate this to 
clients very often is, you know, when I do an assessment, I just get people to stand and then, um, I, you know, I'm showing my hands right now, but you can imagine these are my feet, especially if you're listening, but if you just ask people to shift between pronation and supination. And so you get people to roll to the inside edge of their foot and then roll to the outside edge of their foot. And usually I'm taking a video so I can uh, show them after too. But when you go to the inside edge of your foot, naturally you'll see the shins start to rotate inwards. You'll see the knees come into the middle and you'll see the thighs rotate inwards. When you supinate and you go to the outside edge of the foot, you'll see all the opposite things happen. You'll see the shins rotate out, the knees move away from each other, and the thighs rotate out. So another way to word that, like all those things are linked together and pronation is going to facilitate internal rotation of the leg uh, and supination is going to facilitate external rotation. Now, like most people will agree that way more injuries happen in a knee valgus, so the knees collapsing kind of to the inside of the foot, or if you're on one leg, like maybe that knee stays over the foot, but you see the hips kind of swivel to the outside. Very few injuries happen on the outside of the leg. And this is, you know, one of those examples where um, you can have tensegrity per se, but there's still structural differences between the inside and the outside. We have that strong IT band on the outside that you can kind of use elastically like an Achilles tendon. Um, and, you know, another analogous kind of structure in the spine is uh, we almost never bulge discs uh, in an anterior direction um, through excessive extension. And we have that strong membrane at the front of the spine. Very more often you would bulge discs in a posterior fashion. And it doesn't mean like people don't hurt their backs through extension uh, over time with facet or whatever else. But again, there's certain realities where some tissues are better set up to handle load. Now, if you accept that you don't want a knee valgus and like, say you're looking at the Achilles tendon too, and, um, you want a straighter looking Achilles and you don't want that kind of kink that gets when the foot collapses, um, you're going to tend to favor the more supinated positions with the stronger arch. Um, and you know, again, another example, not even for running, but a lot of people and therapists uh, and trainers spend a lot of time developing the glutes to try to pull the knees out, um, mini band around the knees or whatever it is, different clamshells. <laughs> right. <laughs> the glutes can pull the knees apart and avoid valgus. But if you're, you have two ends to that. And so if your hips trying to pull the knee out, but then your foot's collapsed on the inside edge, um, you have, forces in opposite direction, which is probably worse in some ways than, um, than if everything was inside in some circumstances. Uh, and probably the foot is going to win more often. Like, um, 
you just have a structure that's collapsed and uh, all your weight is going to follow that. And so I think that's one big reason why you would want to favor force absorption on the outside edge of the foot to facilitate the knee moving to the outside and loading the outside of the leg and facilitating that loading on the glutes. Um, and then, um, was it like, you know, I'm not like some people seem to be convinced, like that you actively want to pronate, um, when your foot first contacts the ground. And also they hear sort of this outside edge stuff. And then they just think that the people promoting that are saying pronation is always bad. And, and maybe they are, that's not how I view things. I think it's really just a timing thing. And so, uh -huh. um, this sort of, most of the people that I hear, uh, promote more of the pronation mechanics. I seem to tie it back to Gary Ward. And I don't know if you have much experience with him and I, I don't really, but that just seems to be where the conversation goes to. And I think he's written quite a bit on the function of the foot and walking and running. Um, but he's one of those ones where the communication is not, uh, very simple. And so like I was reading one of his posts on the rotation of the femur, in running recently and he's talking about how like an internal rotation in the femur drives the pelvis away from it which creates a relative external rotation and so you think you're internally rotating but it's external and you know these are the details that most people don't need to know or understand um and is a bit detached from what is the action that someone should be trying to do but um, either way, like my feeling is I like to divide the um, stance phase of running. So when you're on, when your foot's in contact with the ground into the first two halves, when it's sort of in front of your body to the middle or like right under your hips. And then the second half, when you're extending it behind you, that um, effort, I think in the first half, when you're absorbing your body weight onto the ground and you're, you can literally think of your leg as a spring that you're compressing, that effort should be to externally rotate and abduct that leg or, or just put pressure on the outside of it. Um, and that is facilitated with your foot supinating and being on the outside edge. Now, when you come, when that foot comes behind your body, the effort I think should shift to internal rotation, but this is where there's some nuance where what feels smooth to me is that you're literally just following the outside edge and the curve of your foot all the way to about the second toe. Um, which is usually the longest toe for most people. But if you do that is it allows you to keep the pressure on the outside of your leg 
while it's internally rotating. So some people think like if you're internally rotating and you're automatically pronating, but it doesn't have to be the case. You can uh, keep pressure on the outside while your leg turns inward. And that's just, it feels like a nice smooth action that kind of flows. Whereas if you go from the outside to inside abruptly, that's when things kind of collapse and you see those quick jarring movements where the ankle and the knee collapse in. Um, and I don't know why uh, <laughs> anyone would want that. And if you, if you land in internal and pronation, like uh, usually whatever, I think we talked about this with the bows there, but whatever you load the spring with, or, or again, you can think of an elastic sometimes, but whichever rotation you load it with, when it expands and releases that energy, it's going to release with the opposite rotation yeah. in the opposite direction. So if you load external, you're going to explode internal. If you load internal, you're going to explode and leave the ground with external. Yeah. And there may be some circumstances where you can force it not to do that, but that's a very like inefficient use of energy that takes a lot of muscular effort to fight like the way you've loaded the, the fascia or the connective tissue. Yeah, it's um, it's something that I've been exploring a lot within myself in terms of walking, running, etc. Um, and there's a couple of instances where I noticed it happens almost naturally, and that's I know Gota uses sleds a lot, but you know when I was with uh, when I was with ATG, we used sleds a lot, um, and when you're pushing a sled forward it almost naturally occurs you and I've watched videos back of myself, not even thinking about it, but you drive through extension coming up onto, like you said, almost rounding off the second to fifth metatarsal where the heel is away from, you know, you know, if you're looking from behind the heel is pointing out and away from the body yeah. and to, to think that you can't, it's like, it's not something I ever thought about. Um, it was only when I, when all this became, you know, start over the past couple of years and more and more is coming out and the arguments are being made. I went back and I was like, oh, wow, when you're doing something like that, it's kind of always happened. And then of course I've watched back videos on an air runner and the same thing is you get that outside edge plant and the heel whips away in extension. Whereas a lot of people are taught that, oh, if you extend the glute, the whole femur and everything has to externally rotate, mm. um, or, uh, you know, I guess abduct and externally rotate towards the inside of the thighs, like facing the ground, but yeah, I, it's not the case. It's not true. Um, the hip can extend in internal rotation. Um, and I've just know, especially because I've sprained my right ankle so many times, um, running on that outside edge of the foot, just anecdotally and subjectively provides more security through the outside of my leg yeah. than I've ever felt before. And, uh, I, I'm one of those guys that I used to hate running cause I always felt heavy running, 
but now I don't feel heavy when I run. I feel a lot springier, a lot quicker, and a lot more graceful. I don't, you know, you've, you've seen people who run, you know, like we've all seen them, like just tromping down the sidewalk. Like it just looks like, like the most, and then you, and then every once in a while, you'll see that runner that just looks like they're just like walking yeah. on air and they're just so bouncy and graceful. And it's like, okay, I could enjoy running if I look like that, but, but most people don't. Right. And it, and it, you do see this, this collapsing of the inside of the foot, you know, everything's just kind of falling into the inside. Um, and I, th it's one of the, th the things that I made with one of the questions that I kind of posed to everybody. And then I brought up with Ricky, cause I, I think it holds a lot of value. I mean, at least here, look in the States, you know, physical evidence is, is valued highly for a reason, right? Like if you're in a court of law, if you can bring some evidence to the table that everyone can see, the chances of the decision going in your favor are going to be a lot higher than those who don't, right? We just use a lot of words and whatever. And so the, when I look at it, even just from an aesthetic viewpoint, and I think maybe this is where they tend to lose it with some of the science crowd, is because they use like pictures of spirals and, and whatever. But I mean, it's like, and they use that to convey the message. And it's like, I don't know why, because it's still science, biology, and it's like, you know, but I guess maybe that's where they lose it is because if they make it, it, may, it almost comes off, I guess, a little like esoteric and kind of frou-frou yeah. in a nature where it kind of loses some of its, but anyways, the, the point I'm making is like, if you just look at it, which looks better? Hmm. And uh, I have to say from where I sit, the outside edge and the heel flipping out and the bows and all that, it looks better. It looks more aesthetic. It looks functional. Yeah. You know, than, than the opposite. You and know? even, um, and even like some people like to just promote the middle more, like maybe that's, you know, the tripod foot crowd and just like, right. I don't want inside or outside. I want balanced. But if you're balanced, that means you're not, pushing into the fascia on the outside of the leg or at least not nearly as much and that's where the the elastic potential is so if you're balanced in the middle of your foot um, and the leg kind of stays centered you're using a lot more muscular effort each stride compared to like if you can like they go to like say load the bow and create that outward bow shape in the leg load energy from gravity into your IT bands, which then kind of springs you forward and to the other side. And in terms of the spirals, like that's exactly what the good running is. And um, I toyed with the idea of like trying to get this down on a, on a paper, but in uh, um, the two kind of popular or the, most popular model for running they use in research is the like walking, they say inverted pendulum. Um, so it's kind of like, uh, rather than a pendulum that's swinging down, you kind of stick a leg into the ground and then your body vaults over that to the other side. And that just modeling that works pretty well for walking and then for running, they just add a spring in the pendulum. So, it compresses a little bit more and springs you up, but that's a very 2D kind of thing. And it creates that kind of bouncy graph of your 
center of mass going like up and down in little arcs. So when you think about the rotational component, and this is what I talked about, one of the most basic things is your, um, your whole body should be working together. So when your right leg is in front of you, generally you want to turn your body towards that leg, uh, which means the, and if you're trying to load the outside of the front leg, that means external on the front for the rear leg to have that heel out and to point towards that front leg needs to be internal. So they're opposite in terms of external and external or external and internal. But if you think about it, your entire body is rotating clockwise when your right leg is forward. When your left leg is forward, it's the opposite. So your entire body is rotating counterclockwise towards that leg. When you add those rotations on top of the downward component, well, spinning clockwise while going downwards that's a downward spiral. Uh, and then you load the spring as a downward spiral and a spring itself is a spiral shape. When you decompress that spring, you now have an upward spiral in the opposite direction. And so that's all the movement is, is like a series of upward and downwards spirals switching directions. Um, and that's why I said too, like the uh, <clears throat> like I don't think you'll see anything really crazy um, in terms of movement in a lot of sports because that's one of the principles. If you want to make the most transfer the most energy in one direction, the most power, um, you want all of your body working together, and so they all kind of have to orient in the same way in that regard. And so you're not like, you're not really going to see something too different from that. Yeah. Otherwise you're, you're getting outside like good physics. I mean, that's, that's like when it comes to my training philosophy in general, right. Is like one of the things I say often is like, I don't necessarily believe in systems. I believe in principles and at any point where you violate basic scientific principles, your system falls apart. If your system can't sit upon very basic, you know, we're talking really basic here. That's the thing too, is like people make this very complicated, right? Like, and obviously, especially on one end of the, of the coin, they can make it extremely complicated and then go down rabbit holes and rabbit holes of science and this and that and the other, but like physiologically, biologically, anatomically, there's very basic principles that we all operate on as human beings. And of course, there's going to be some outliers and variants based on certain individual, again, biomechanics and bone lengths and all these different things. But, but like night, I would argue that like 95% of it should hold true for almost everybody. Right. And, um, I think that what you're doing is, is incredible work. I'm surprised that, you know, you haven't amassed a larger following. I hope to uh, hope to help you out on that because I, oh, I, I see what you're doing and, and, and I think it's great. I think that you are a, not only a scientist, but an artist. And I think that that's what we have to find. And I think you're going to find some of the greatest coaches are a good blend of the two, not, you know, 
it's not the science versus art crowd, right? Like we have to find that there, and we have to understand that I think that there's a good blend between the two. There's a middle ground of like, you can't be too artsy fartsy and just like totally neglect basic scientific principles, but you can't also just be so science that you lose like the true art yeah. and an aesthetic that does exist in our universe. And that, you know, aesthetic does have a functional purpose in that, you know, like a lot of people say, well, form dictate, dictates function, but I think that function it's backwards. Like, I think really we need to look at function will always dictate the form and how we see the things that we're, that we're doing. Right. And, um, you know, I guess one of the questions I want to ask you, cause this is really the, this is really the question that everyone's dying to know because people message me and everyone wants to know, is there a middle ground? Right, like, can you do what the go to guys are preaching and teaching, and still have your weightlifting, and still have your ironing, and still have your more traditional, quote unquote, yeah. training or whatever you want to call it? Do you yeah. think that there's a middle ground between the two, or do you think that, you know, at some point, like the go to guys are convinced they've cracked it, like that's it, hmm. scrap, scrap. All the traditional weightlifting, scrap it all for the most part. I, I mean, I asked Ricky, they, you know, they do believe in like chin-ups and, and, and some squatting in, in various ways and whatever, but for the most part, scrap everything that you're doing mm. on that end and just do the go-to system and just do this one thing. You know, I don't know too much about WEC. Obviously, I just see the antagonism between the two, <laughs> really, which yeah. is so funny because it's like, there's so many similarities. It's almost like, what are you arguing about? But um, do you think there's a middle ground? Do you think, because that's, because let's just be honest. The hardest part is when people, is people just not wanting to let go of, of the iron addiction that they have or whatever it is, right? Of like some of this more, you know, guys and women love to throw around some weight. So like, do you think that you can still demonstrate a lot of these efficient mechanics that you talk about in terms of running and, and forward locomotion and still have some impressive strength in the weight room as well. Obviously yeah. we know that if you go too far one way or too far from the other, you know, this is like Ito's whole message of like specialization versus generalization and all these things. But, you know, for the average person, I guess you could say, and then we can kind of say, okay. And then for the professional athlete, do you think there's a, a middle ground between the two areas or, or do you think you should go one way more than the other? Yeah. Uh, I think there is a bit of a middle ground and I alluded to this where actually, yeah, we talked about this in one of our chats um, before, but there are limits to efficiency. And um, so that example I used there was like, if you, you know, there's efficiency charts for weightlifting, but um and most people in North America, especially if they don't have good coaching, they're often very inefficient, you know, like, well, I can back squat 210 kilos and my best clean is 120 or something where they right. should be at like 90% or, or whatever it is. Um, but I have run into weightlifters who, uh, you know, use the bounce very efficiently. Their timing is crisp and they can clean and stand up with the clean. That's more than their front squat. 
And so those people aren't going to keep getting better by trying to improve their technique. They need to get stronger. And so the answer, you know, in those cases, they were squatting with the same kind of bouncy, efficient mechanics. And so they had to make squatting less efficient by going slower, adding pauses. Don't let the fascia and the connective tissue do the elastic work so that their muscles have more of the demand. Um, so it, for these systems, like, um, and just movement efficiency in general, there is going to be a point where um, of diminishing returns like anything else. And then if you want to keep getting better, you'll need to add muscle mass and get stronger. Now, I think Goto would say like, and a lot of these systems say like, they're not against that to begin with. They would just do their lifts with mechanics stylized to like ways that might be applicable to how they want to move more then i do think that aspect is important so i guess it's debatable whether you'd call that a middle ground or not but um with running say in most movements where you're alternating like single leg that you're like on one leg and then you're on the other leg and your body rotates in the same direction at the same time but that means that the rotation in each leg is opposite in terms of external and internal that's not represented in most lifts in the weight room like if you're doing a squat or a deadlift generally the limbs mirror each other so they're both external um less often both in internal or, or neutral but uh it's not it's not just a motor learning question of like you've taught yourself to turn your legs out at the same time, but you're literally building tension in the tissue in, in passive and active, active ways where probably the more tension you build with more load and more volume, the more they're both, your legs are going to stay more external and display more external rotation and more movements. Um, so if you can, and then like in most quote unquote single leg movements in the weight room, which it often ends up being like a split stance that's really just double leg in, in a split. So people right. end up. <laughs> I made a post, I made a post about this recently. Like, <laughs> um, yeah, you, there's, that's a, a, another thing, but then they're often like the straight up and down mechanics. And so, uh, again, neutral on the front and the back and not really driving internal or external. Um, so, um, yeah, I think you can push weights and get bigger while learning these mechanics. Um, but, in movement's not all a choice, like you're building strength and attention that um, is building a path of least resistance the stronger you get in those positions. And it's it's never like people want an answer. Um, and, you know, I can make myself sound like more of a guru just by saying, 
here's the answer, but it's the, it depends. And the best thing to do is if you want to do that, just like video your movements and understand what good technique is. And so if you, um, are lifting and then you see that like when you're running, both your knees are starting to point away from each other and you're like from the rear view on your swing leg or the leg in the air, you see that foot and ankle move inside of the knee, like towards the midline. Then if you can't just think about that and correct it, you've probably built too much tension that way. Doesn't mean like your solution has to involve not lifting. Maybe you're able to just like do therapeutic modalities to release the external rotation tension to allow more internal rotation. Yeah. Or maybe you just add um, more strength to internal rotation. But the tricky thing is like, it's like external, like neutral to external are the safer places to load compressive tension. So there's not really many circumstances where you want to load compressively an internally rotated leg. So it's less often that people build tension in those positions. And so there's a bias to like getting too far external um, for most people relative to internal. Um, most of like the internal rotation happens when a leg is in the air or unloaded. And you can do some stuff with cables, but whether you're going to replicate a load that like balances out the tension you can have when you have hundreds of pounds on your back or in your hands, I don't know, but people should just like test it out and see. Yeah, that's a good point. Like Ricky and they called it washing away, right? Like kind of using some of these more passive principles and some of their exercises to kind of like, in a way, cancel out what these guys are going to do in the weight room anyway. Right. Because we know every high school and college and pro guy is going to go to the, I mean, this, it's just, it's going to be time coming. Even they could have the answer, right? They could have the answer. It could be, okay, here it is. It's still going to be <laughs> two decades before everyone else catches up anyway. Right. Because it just seems to be like, that's how long it takes. So they call it kind of washing away, right? Like, look, we understand that you're going to go to your college and you're high and you're going to be told to do these things. So here's the tools that you can use to kind of, like I said, he called it washing away, kind of canceling out. And that's kind of how I look at it is like, like most things you have to have some balance, right? Like, yeah. and I think that like one of the things that I really like is I like a combination of sled work with squatting because you do learn to create torque and tension with that, the whole leg kind of moving into that more, I guess, internally rotated position, but still driving off the outside of the foot. Whereas obviously squatting is going to be the opposite, right? Where you're going to be more externally rotated. And, and arguably, depending on who you are as a squatter, it's funny because I came across that post with Tom Platts who said he put all the pressure through the outside of his foot, which I was like, that's the first time I ever heard that. Like, yeah. and, and arguably one of the best squatters, I mean, best set of legs that we've ever seen. Um, even he recognized that like, in squatting, you want to push off the outside of the foot, even though it's the hips are still externally rotated or whatever. He did everything he could to drive from there, which I thought was for me was kind of like <laughs> it was like singularity, right? It was like 
I, you found where both sides kind of came together and it was like through Tom Platt's funny enough, but, um, yeah, it was a really interesting kind of thing for me because, uh, but like even Nick DeSaiza, you know, and just sitting everything kind of all that rolled out ankles out, everything's kind of, it's the opposite of what you do. So if, you know, I guess that would be the argument is like, obviously you're going to do more of what you do the most. So if you can find some way of either canceling it out or putting a little bit more energy towards the opposite, it arguably wouldn't have as such a detrimental effect, right? Of like, but obviously if you only ever power lift squat and it's all you ever do and you don't, I mean, it's like, I guess you, you know, that's another three hour conversation, <laughs> but, but, um, but yeah, I think that that's kind of where I sit because everyone keeps messaging me. What do you think? What do you think? What do you think? What do you think? And I haven't really given anyone an answer, but I guess now if I'll tell everyone to come listen to this podcast. It'll be the easiest way to do it is I think there is a way to kind of to, to have a little bit of both. Obviously I don't think you're going to excel a hundred percent either direction, but, um, but you know, Hey, I, I squat a lot. I think I move pretty well. Um, you're strong. You move well. I think there's, I think you're going to see a little bit of both of these, of these things. Yeah. And, and I think that you can have a little bit of both, but like you said, it's more or less going to be about what, you know, go to other argument is, okay, you are squatting in the hour, an hour in the gym. Really the biggest issue probably is the fact that you're sitting externally in a rotated in a chair, your ankles are stuck at 90 degrees. Your hips are stuck in an external rotation. Your back's all slouched over. Like that's probably doing more damage than anything is, is more or less how we sit all day versus, uh, versus what we're doing in the weight room would probably be arguably the, the, would have a greater effect if you're sitting, you know, a lot of these kids are sitting in a chair anymore in school for six to eight hours at a time, very little activity. I mean, I've coached kids at like PE and recess and all these things, these things don't even exist anymore in, in schools. So it's like, they get no movement, like zero movement. And if you try to sit, you know, if you, you see those kids that naturally try to sit in a chair on their knees or whatever, and they're told, hey, you sit down in your chair. That's not how you sit in it. You know, I would say, I would argue that's probably more of the issue than anything, but um, yeah, man, it's a great conversation. Um, it's led me to find you. I think your work's incredible. I think anyone listening to this, uh, please go check Nicholas's page out, uh, show him support, show him some support, show him some love. It's at Nicholas Simpson and Nicholas is a CH Nicholas uh, underscore on Instagram. Um, he's doing pretty incredible work uh, and, and quite the track record, uh, no pun intended, but um, worked with some phenomenal athletes and a, and a phenomenal athlete himself. Um, and I, I just got to say, I respect the way you see things and, and, and the way you view things. I think it, it's, you know, it's refreshing. I'll say that it's definitely refreshing because, you know, I, I'm refreshed. Sometimes I'm, I'm weary of like messaging guys on, on either end of the spectrum. Cause it's always going to be like my way or the highway kind of situation. But I think you, you kind of see things a little, some things a little more gray and then obviously some things a little black and white, like as we described today. Um, but you know, I do have to say thank you so much for sitting down with me for two and a half hours and, and having this discussion. I know people will listen to it and we'll listen to the whole thing. Um, you know, if, if I guess kind of the last question I want to ask you is if, if there was one major takeaway that someone could, you know, if somebody could just fast forward through all this conversation and all the information and just like one takeaway or, or one of the best things that you've ever learned in terms of strength training and movement or whatever you want to call it, um, you know, what would you say those, those things are? 
uh, is it, um, you know, I know Ricky already touched on the uh, inside ankle bone high, but uh, aside from like, you know, the foot is an easy one, which we didn't really like aside from those mechanics, we didn't get into too much today. But I would say, you know, of the things we talked about today, just the whole body working together. So you're either like uh, spinning clockwise or spinning counterclockwise and, and learning to include that in your movements and getting that, that torque and not just moving up and down or straight forward and back. Yeah, that's yeah, moving clockwise and counterclockwise at the same time. So uh, you can't really, you can't really do that, right? <laughs> There's no give or take there. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, as a whole, but uh, and that's what we uh, you see is you have like one leg moving counter and one clockwise, and and that's when uh, people run into some of the injuries. Yeah, that's that's one of the biggest things. Like especially from the slow motion, is you see exactly different points in the body one moving away and one moving towards and that's where you get the the rotation and the stress on the on the ligaments and tendons and things like that so um and that's uh, like i love you know finding little quick examples to demo new clients and um if you get anyone to squat on one leg or like jump on one leg uh very often their free leg at least the clients we get is pointing away from the midline, it's externally rotated. And you just like get someone halfway down into a single leg squat and you like turn your free leg out and then they'll feel their, the leg they're standing on start to get pulled in the same direction. And then they get pressure on the inside and you go neutral and then you go in and you feel that pressure load up on the outside. And well, uh, the funny thing that people don't ever think about, and this is why like my hit program is Oh, shameless to say it's very successful, but it's because I emphasize rotation of the hips, specifically looking at piriformis. And one thing that people don't realize about the piriformis is it connects femur to sacrum back to the other femur, right? So if one leg is more externally than the other, it should pull the entire system or it should pull the other half the opposite direction. So if your left side is externally rotating, you would hope that your right side is internally rotating and vice versa. And that's why you see it generally in a lot of when people are trying to correct squats is that one hip externally rotates more. So then the other hip rotates internally more and vice versa or whatever. Um, and again, it just comes down to like understanding basic anatomy, right? Like as if, if let's just say from a, a passive standpoint, one piriformis is tighter than the other one side of your body is always going to externally rotate more. One side is always going to internally rotate more, especially when we come, when we're looking at hips and lower body because of the way that piriformis kind of twit twists and torque everything. So my, one of my first things I'm giving away all my secrets here is just yeah. restoring some of that passive length and compression of the piriformis. So it's like, okay, let's most everybody I have ever looked at has discrepancies side to side in terms of rotation piriformis is like one, my, my left piriformis is always tighter than my right or whatever. Um, restoring some of that passive tension so we can get that a little more neutral and then working some more of the the active, like we kind of described earlier, active components of can I actively now control external and internal and work these kind of two parts of the body, uh, you know, separately of one another. And then we can start to see some more of that internal, external relationship from side to side and the torquing and the twisting. 
and it becoming a little bit more seamless because yeah, that's like, I mean, a theoretic, I mean, the way you're taught to squat is that you're just like your piriformis is stuck yeah. both externally rotating. If you, if you lack and, and most people lacks passive. I mean, if, if you address most people's hips, most people, most people lack internal hip rotation. So it's like, of course, no wonder you can't get that torque and that twist. And of course, that's why your hips are always in. Of course, that's why your back, you know, and so on and so forth. That's why your back and your knees and every your feet and everything is so jacked up. But uh, yeah, man, I, th I think that's like a, a really good point. Um, and, and uh, you know, I think that more people are going to, are this is just refreshing information to them uh, because it's just so natural, right? And that's like the argument for me, if somebody's put, put me down and like I said, in the court of law, somebody's life was on the line and said, look at this video and look at this video. Tell me which one do you think is a better one? I'm going to go with the go to argument. I'm going to go with the outside edge and the inside ankle bone high. I'm going to go with it because not only does it look better, not only can we see from slow motion evidence that functionally it's, it's, it seems to be better. It's hard yeah. to argue just from that standpoint alone. Right. And I think that people should not discredit their ability to observe things in the natural universe and the physical universe. You're not crazy. You're seeing what you're seeing. And if what you're seeing makes sense, there's probably a reason for it. And if what you're seeing doesn't make sense, there's also probably a reason for that. And you should question the things that don't make sense and the things that don't look right. And it, I don't know, did you see Ricky's post uh, on Instagram of, of the seminar they just did? And they were like, they showed the guy in the bows and kind of like, would you take this guy? Yeah. And then he rotated everything out. I was like, <laughs> I thought that was the greatest visualization for people because it's a hard argument to go. Yeah. I'm definitely going to take the second option. No, it's like, you look at it and you go, of course I'm going to take the first option. It's just like, duh. Yeah. So, I think they make a compelling argument, man. I think they make a compelling argument. I think you make a compelling argument. Yeah. Um, you know, I, and I think that you give a good blend of both sides of the coin of the, of more of the science and the strength conditioning background, but also why does what you're seeing make sense? You yeah. know, whereas maybe they can't do so good of a job explaining that for those who tend to be more critical of the science and the evidence. I think you, make a good argument on that side, but which is, which is why I wanted to sit down and have this conversation with you. Not the only reason, but a big part of the reason is because, you know, of course, everyone's going to want, you're going to want one side and you're going to want to want to want the other. You know, some of the more intuitive guys don't give a shit what the science says or what the strength, you know, they just go, well, that looks right to me. So that's what I'm going to go with, you know? And it's like, you have to respect it because it's like, <laughs> you know, you got the balls and the initiative just to go for it. You know what I mean? So, uh, yeah. It's uh, it's funny seeing some of the guys push back against uh, Goda right now, and partly this is like some of the Goda coaches' like fault, I guess you could say, because they're being pretty aggressive about like calling other people out, yeah. saying you're allowing shitty mechanics or this injury was shitty mechanics, but um, you know, other coaches pointing out like or saying if you think biomechanics are the only factor, like uh in injury like you're an asshole and what about like fatigue and like nutrition hormones? sleep hormones all right all that stuff's true but then um they're just i i feel that they're kind of using the excuse that there are very other variables to like not really give a look 
at the mechanics or change those because then they're just saying that and continuing to do what they're always doing and and like then your uh, argument would have to be mechanics just don't matter at all yeah right even in the context they put it in it's like okay well then fine then you can't make the argument that your mechanics are what makes it right either because you're using it's a straw man argument you're using a totally different argument to like try to disprove this point but it's like the argument is mechanics we're not talking about any of the other stuff i don't think that they're saying all these other things don't have a factor obviously you know cognitive function because of lack of sleep and you know and fatigue and all these things obviously are going to play a role but the argument is mechanics so you, we have to argue mechanics versus mechanics we're not going to argue nutrition versus mechanics we can argue nutrition versus nutrition and i even i brought that up with them like do you guys you know since you have guys have a t tendency to have a more primal way of looking at things do you feel the same way about the diet or whatever and of course that you know yeah, some whole foods and whatever, but yeah, it is funny how people do that, right? Like, here's the argument. Okay, let me argue against this with a completely different argument. It's like, uh, okay. <laughs> it's like, all right, you know, but again, that's like, that's that's a problem in and of itself, like just straw man arguments and like, yeah, just totally going way out of con, like, it's not the same context, right? <laughs> like, yeah, it's like, like People who argue against flexibility always use like hyper mobile examples of like why flexibility is bad. It's like, it's not even the same thing, but like, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but that's, that's, I guess that's human nature, right? It's like, I don't really understand the context. So I'm going to use a different context to try to argue against it, but whatever. Yeah. I'll, uh, I'll, I'll send you a funny example of that offline if it's still up but <laughs> all right yeah yeah man i mean i don't want to take up too much of your time i think that i think we could sit down and have another conversation definitely at some point in the future um i'm excited to keep following you and, and see what now you i know that you said that to me personally right now you're kind of doing like a running project now is this something that's slated to end or is this like um you know what's what's the deal with that just to kind of yeah. end on that well, my, uh, yeah, my short-term goal is just for myself to hit like 20 miles an hour on the curve. Um, and as a starting point, like a few years ago, this was a different curve. So like right now in my kitchen, I have a, um, the assault air runner, but a few years ago when I was still lifting, like, uh, it was, um, what is it? The Norwegian brand, I think, the tech something, but um, like my max speed was 13 on there, and then as I started to incorporate some of those these other things pretty quickly, is 15, 16, and I think I'm around 17 right now. And I'm uh, my body weight right now. I'm around 100 kilos. I'm not super light at the moment. Wow. But, uh, so, you know, it was a completely different challenge um for me trying to run quickly when you know a few years ago people used to joke about like how i'd pick something off the floor and <laughs> like take yeah. my time to do that um and then i don't know i really i really enjoyed the running um and i think it's a good thing for me to orient like you know gait in general around my clients um programs um and so doing that helps me to just just problem solve things and understand it better but after that i don't know like you know 
since my body moves a lot better than it used to, I was curious. I think I mentioned like if I did try weightlifting again, like what would my numbers start to look like? Um, because yeah. you know, I was one of those examples again of uh poor efficiency in weightlifting. My best front squat was um is it like 184 kilos and then um back squat around 225 but my best clean ever was at 150 and um so I, you know technically i should have been closer to the like 170 mark maybe and so cleaning 200 sounds badass oh legendary uh, yeah yeah uh, Cleaning double body weight is wow. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I guess that's the next step, right? Is like, <clears throat> that's the next step. I mean, naturally. Okay. Yeah. It's like, especially for someone like you is, uh, and that's kind of like what I do is, is experiment myself first, right? Can I, can I move in these more optimal ways and maintain a level of strength in the gym? It's not more or less about, it's just about like, what can I do? What can be done? Yeah. Right. Um, and, uh, and then that's kind of my thing too, is like, yeah, can you move well and, and be strong? Cause I think that, I think a lot of lifting injuries and stuff too, are totally preventable when, when you address the right things, you know, I think that coaching is obviously a massive point, right. But also just like self-regulation and again, like checking off the list and starting with, do your joints have good passive range of motion and kind of just going up through those kind of points that we discussed a lot earlier. Um, and I think like, if you think about it just logically and do it correctly, there's no reason you should be beat up from lifting. I think you can lift and stay really healthy and, you know, and, and, and also still move well. So it's really now it's like, can we prove it? Right. <laughs> so, and to prove it with yourself first. And like you said, you introduce it with your client your friends and then some clients, and then you start to build up, you know, a bit of a, uh, uh, you know, a bit of a, a group that, that demonstrates that you not only can you talk, talk, but you walk the walk. And I think that's like a, a big proponent of your coaching as well, too. And that's a big shift we're seeing in the industry is a lot of guys that are teaching things are staying involved and have to stay involved because of social media and stuff like that. Um, very much in what it is that they're, they're, they're getting other people to do, right? Like, if I'm teaching flexibility, I should demonstrate some level of flexibility. If I'm teaching, like, of course, there are great coaches that have come and gone and, you know, they've, they're well away from that. doesn't not make them a good coach, but I think you are seeing a math, you know, the golden ticket is, is, is like, can I age well and still move well? Like, do I, or do I have to make a sacrifice of like, like some guy today was talking to me in the gym, 60, he said, and of course he had every excuse in the book as to why at 60, he's not doing the thing. And I'm, and I'm sitting there thinking, of course, like, of course I'm 30. So I'm like, eh. but I've worked with people 60, 70, pulled them out of these ruts and these misconceptions that they've had. And it's like, you know, I think there's a lot of untapped potential. I think that you're going to start to see, you know, we're already seeing it in professional sports, you know, quote unquote, you know, peaks extending late into later parts of their lives. If you look at the guys like LeBron James, like there's a lot of high level athletes aren't slowing down and they're getting into the point where they're quote unquote beyond their prime and stuff like this. And I think that there's just, you're going to see more of that in the future is like, we, 
yeah, your prime was 25 because your training was so horrible that that's, that's as far as you got, but it's like, yeah. and of course we can't really sit on our ancestors because, you know, life expectancy was so low, not because of, you know, it was more environmental reasons. It wasn't like they, you know, aged horribly or anything is because they got eaten by a, a freaking bear or a jaguar or something. You know what I mean? Like, um, so yeah, man, I think potential's there. And I think that you're going to be one of those guys leading the charge. You know, I've, you see a lot of stuff on social media and, you know, like I said, you know, I'm not that it necessarily means anything, but I'm impressed. And I think you're definitely somebody people should watch and follow because I think that you're going to, you know, personally, I think that you're going to have a lot to contribute. Um, and so just keep, keep doing what you're doing, man. And, and, uh, I look forward to maintaining, uh, some sort of professional relationship and, uh, and just kind of seeing, tossing ideas back and forth, you know, you've already kind of had me think about things and question things. And so, you know, that's, that's what I live for is, is, uh, you know, tearing down these dogmas and, and, and unlearning things that I've learned and relearning and learning new things. And so, yeah, man, I just want to say thank you. And, and uh, I look forward to having another discussion again soon. Yeah, I appreciate it. And, um, you know, I, some people have called my page a little esoteric and I, I usually yeah, way out of big debates and I just post things that are fun to me. But, um, you know, I love these conversations because I like to challenge myself and, uh, and get, get, get challenged. Um, and having other good minds like yourself helps to do that. Yeah. I think it pierces the veil. And that was the biggest thing with, with Rick, right. As I was like, they come off a certain way on Instagram, but it's like when you can sit down and have a conversation with them again, it's, this is a theme that everybody should take grasp of hold of right now. If you just sit down and talk to another individual, you, you will always realize you have way more in common than you don't. Right. And we can start to discuss and find those common points. And the more we do that, the more we're all moving to a better, whatever it is in whatever field it is, whether it's fitness, politics, religion, it doesn't matter. You know, I just think people need to sit down and have these conversations more because that's really what's going to drive us forward. Um, because it's, it's the going at each other all the time that that's really what's going to pull us back. And then we look at history, right? It's, it's when we're at each other's throats that we tend to take a couple steps back and when we're all working together and communicating well and, and putting our ideas together and, and, and be willing to have the conversations that sometimes we may not want to have. That's, what's going to push us forward. So, um, you know, we'll probably end on that Nicholas, uh, just end and we'll, we'll cancel it out here where, where people can find, if they want to learn more about you, um, obviously your Instagram, but maybe you have some other, um, resources that people can find more about you and more about what you do. Yeah. I currently my Instagram, uh, it's kind of the main thing at Nicholas Simpson underscore where I just put some stuff that I have fun with at vital strength physiology is where we have a bit more of the client side and, and more professional accounts. Uh, I think I mentioned to you, um, on Twitter at up to faith. That's really just, uh, if people are interested in nutrition and biochemistry, I end up scrolling through a lot of articles on PubMed and try to share things that I find are interesting. And I think there's like, you know, at least 60 people that find that interesting enough to, to follow me there. That's all it takes. Yeah. And, uh, people can yeah feel free to start a conversation if they like to. Yeah. That's awesome. Uh, interesting thoughts that start that way. Yeah. That's awesome. Again, man. Uh, thank you. And I will look forward to uh, talking to you soon.
And uh, make sure you go follow him, guys. So if you're listening to this, go give him a follow. And I'll be sharing a lot more content and, and sharing some of his content and stuff too, as well on my page. So you can look out for that, guys. Talk soon. Thanks, Nicholas.